You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Quarterly Women's Social Club. Days and Convicted. Pool Party Radio. Show King. The Devil's Advocate. The Projection Booth. Awful Flips. Pod I'm sitting on top of the world. I'm rolling along. Yes, rolling along. And I'm quitting. Support for the Projection Booth Podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of the Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found in the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com slash booth. I'm rolling along, rolling along. Don't want any million. I'm getting my share. I've only got one suit, just one. For centuries, he's been called the greatest villain of all time. Now, a motion picture tells his story as it has never been told before. United Artists Pictures presents... Now is the winter of our discontent. Richard III. dark heart of a royal family. I have too long borne your blunt upbraidings and bitter stuff. Who would stop at nothing to take the throne. I see the ruin of my family. I can smile. And murder while I smile. His ambition is masked in passion. Did you not kill my husband? Your beauty could make me undertake the death of all the world. His hatred is disguised as love. I will send you to my brother Richard. Your brother Richard hates you. Chop off his head. <laughs> his brutality is hidden in nobility. I've no more sons of the royal blood for you to slaughter. You have a daughter. One man's evil. You came on earth to make the earth my hell. Will conquer all. Long live King Richard! by the devil yes if the devil tempt you to do good Richard the third welcome to the 
Projection Booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary, and joining me, of course, co-host, Mr. Mike White. Hey, baby, how about we do it pell-mell style? Also with us again this week, our friend and Shakespeare fiend, Mr. Edward Pettit. Thank you for having me again. This week, we're looking at the 1995 film Richard III, directed by Richard Loncrane and based on the historical tragedy of the same name written by William Shakespeare. It tells the tale of a scheming hunchback with a bad arm, played by Ian McKellen who, after the House of York victory over the House of Lancaster for the throne of England, works to set his brothers against each other and become king. So, Ed, as our guest, when was the first time you saw Richard III, and what did you think? I saw for the first time uh, in the movie theaters when it came out. It was in 95 when it came out. It was, you know, it's in the midst of that great Shakespeare renaissance in the 90s in the, in the theaters. And, uh, and so I was seeing everything, um, but especially excited, excited to see this film with the kind of alternate history setting that it has in this kind of fascist 1930s 40s britain you know as if you know kind of nazis had taken over there um and uh was very excited to see that kind of film loved it when i saw it but 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 i really loved it for ian mckellen and for the film itself and the way it looked um but was in the end, I think at the time I was I was disappointed in in in, in a couple of the performances uh, in, in the film, and because any Shakespeare piece like this, while while McKellen is is the star and is and is wonderful, and it you still have that you know ensemble cast is what you get in a Shakespeare film. They've all got to be really well, or or it kind of hurts it. And and I think this film does suffer from that a little bit. But that's my, my general my, my general impression was that I loved it at the time for Ian McKellen. And you, Mr. Mike? I saw this a few months ago when we decided that we we're going to cover this for the show, actually, when we uh, right before we spoke to Mr. Lon Crane about this. So, uh, yeah, still pretty fresh for me. I rewatched it again last night. I tried to watch the Olivier Richard III for a little bit of comparison, um, I think about two days ago. And, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed uh, the Lon Crane Richard III, and I can – see where you're coming from, Ed, with some of the performances. This is definitely one where, my gosh, it would help a lot if I knew history. And I definitely (laughs) don't know my history as well as I should. As for me, I saw this one in the theater as well. I think it was uh, 16 or 17 or something like that when it came out. And it was part of this, I think, raft, as we kind of talked about before on the previous episode that you were on, Ed, that uh, you know, Branham was doing all this Shakespeare stuff in the late '80s and early '90s, and then also I think around the same time, may have even been the same year, that this film came out was the Lawrence Fishburne Othello, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that when we do Othello coming up. But I was really blown away by it because, as you said, you know, the design in this sort of fascist '30s England and all of that stuff, and this I think was my first exposure to Sir Ian McKellen. Obviously, before he became more well-known to the kids these days as Gandalf from the Lord of the Rings. So I was just really impressed with it. I thought the design was great and uh, hadn't really revisited the film until I took a look at it right before we had the conversation with Richard Longcrane, which you'll hear in a bit. And um, I'm, I still like it. I think it's it's one of the better sort of um, alternate-placed uh, Shakespeare films, along with Titus, at least in my my estimation. But 
Before we get into the film, because we have uh, two special guests this week, what I really wanted to talk about, Ed, was I wanted to start off with you. If you could kind of give us maybe an overview of this play and sort of when it was written and what Shakespeare was sort of working with to try and get into the idea of who Richard is, and then that'll lead us into the first interview. Sure, it's it's actually an early play for Shakespeare. It's it's it's, it's in his first, you know within his first you know several plays that he's writing, um, and it's the first one where he really seems to catch fire um, and uh, to put this kind of complete vision that, that that works very well together on stage and the characters work. And Richard is is really such a dynamic villain that he's created here. Uh, it's the Elizabethan era, so it's still the, you know, it's, it's still the House of Tudor. Um, and uh, uh, the, uh, Richard III was, um, uh, uh, he lost his throne to, to Richmond in the film, it's, it, who becomes uh, Henry VII, and then his child is Henry VIII, who is Elizabeth's father. So it's kind of like there's a family connection. Shakespeare's writing close enough that there's a family connection that, that people can see. Um, and that that the you know the state the government can see. So he's certainly going to you know write a the kind of play that doesn't portray the the, the you know the rulers before the Tudors as um, as good. Um, and the and the histories that Shakespeare consults are all Tudor histories, and they've you know, they you know won the Wars of the Roses at the end. So their histories are all you know they they, they paint Richard as this uh, evil. Um, character uh, and and primarily um, Thomas More, um, who St. Thomas More uh, uh, wrote a history of Richard III, uh, which Shakespeare would have consulted, and it is really damning. And a lot of the a lot of those little details about Richard's appearance and just him being this kind of evil Machiavellian figure that comes from Sir Thomas More or St. Thomas More. And the play was performed um, uh, a lot. It was it was a very popular play in Shakespeare's time, and then it actually continued. Um, Richard III has always been an immensely popular Shakespeare play on stage, if not only because it has such a great character in Richard and as theater, especially up until more recent times, has been a kind of you know actor-driven thing where 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 great actors kind of decide the the, the shows that are going like the great actor managers that kind of ran theater for you know a couple hundred years. They've always wanted to play Richard, so it's always been a very popular play. I think in America in the 19th century, it was the most popular Shakespeare play. It was the most performed play of Shakespeare's. Uh, and that continues on stage today. And what I always find very odd is that there's only a couple major films of it. You know, I mean, I, you would think that more actors would want to do a Richard III performance, but it's just Olivier McKellen, at least as far as a major feature film goes. Unlike Titus Andronicus, which you corrected me, of course, on our Titus episode, <laughs> who's not a real person, Richard III actually was a real person. And there is a group of folks out there who say, you know, one such bad guy after all. Yeah, he did have a bad spine. As a matter of fact, they found his body recently under a parking lot in England, and that proved that out. But, uh, you know, Richard III, not really that bad of a guy. So uh, why don't we take a break and play an interview with Dr. Phil Stone of the Richard III Society after these important messages. Hi, this is Kevin Batchelder. <laughs> And this is the Saturday B movie reel. Do something. Shoot it. Shoot it. <laughs> <laughs> 
That about describes it, yeah. All right, everybody stay here. We look specifically at the Sci-Fi Channel's original movies. You know the ones. The ones that air on Saturday night. Eat known throughout the ages is an instant classic. <laughs> we need a bigger gator! Uh, limb cutting yes. and blood squirting from... <laughs> Flying limbs, I called them. it in my notes. What could go wrong? We look on a regular basis at the movies as they come out, and since there have been over 200 of them, we do go back and look at many of them that are now out on DVD. At this point, I had completely forgotten any semblance of seeing if this actually makes any sense from a plot point of view. So come on by, get involved, and have some fun. Check us out at SaturdayBMovieReal.com. The future depends on it. Make it safe. Tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The Viewer's Guide to Genre Television. Welcome, everyone, to a special Supernatural-focused bonus Hello, everyone, show. and welcome to The Fayfox. A family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday Bee Movie Reel. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Study welcome Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones Season 3. Find us at TuningIntoSciFiTV.com. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to the projection booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the projection booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. chairman of the Richard Stead Society. Uh, in my outside life, I'm now retired, but prior to that, I was a doctor. So what does the Richard Third Society do? The society was founded 90, yeah, 90 years ago, 1924, um, by a small group of people led by, funnily enough, a, a surgeon um, who wanted to promote research into the life and times of King Richard, believing that the features of the traditional accounts, the you know, the Shakespearean play and the various Tudor pieces of propaganda that just don't stack up. Uh, they're not uh, you know, they're not supported by the evidence. Um the society basically its aim is to promote any possible way of research into life and times and we've been doing that, as I say, for ninety years or at least uh, actively, very much so for the last 50 years, but uh, and of course, since recent events, uh, you know, it's become a big thing. Everybody wants to know about King Richard. When you look at the members and the people that join the society, what do you find is the common bond among them? Is it this interest in history? Are some of them related to Richard? You know, uh, what seems to be the common bond? I'm not aware that any of our members claim a relationship. But I think the common bonds, and there are possibly several, are one, an interest in history and an interest in medieval history, of course. But another, I think, is a sense of justice. 
I, history has not done fairly by Richard III. I, yes, he only reigned for a couple of years, but uh, more has been written about this one king than just about anybody, any monarch that has been before or since. I, we all think of Henry VIII, the king who had six wives, but and we know that he executed a lot of people during his reign, not notwithstanding two of his wives. Yet we are all led to believe Bluff King Howe, you know, great chap, you know, all the rest of it. Now Richard may, and I do very much emphasize, may have been responsible for the death of the two boys, his, his nephews, but there's no proof, there's no evidence that he was. Whereas you know, there's documentary evidence for all of the killings under Henry VIII's name, Yet, poor old Richard gets denigrated, and he's considered a nasty piece of work, the evil, wicked uncle, and all the rest of it. And, he- and Henry, as I say, is bluff King Hal. I mean, we just don't feel that justice is being done. And that has a lot to do with it as well. I mean, Richard III is a romantic figure. A lot of our members are. I, I, I hesitate to say this, because I know I should get shot down, but a lot of our members are, are women and they they do have this romantic view of King Richard and I can understand why you know he's a he's an enigmatic figure that uh, I, you just sort of feel there's something there that uh, history has done badly by him and that the society's aim is, uh, is to promote research get to the bottom of all this get to the truth if we find that Richard was a rotter in the end, well, tough. We then look for the flaws in the argument. But in the meantime, we want to get to the truth of his life and times. You know, what did Richard do and say in certain times? I mean, we've got fair ideas of where he was, but it would be nice to get hold of um, documentary evidence to tell us more about uh, you know, what he was really trying to achieve. So if a dumb American like me, perhaps, came up to you at a cocktail party and found out you were, you know, a member of the Richard III Society, one of my questions would probably be, who was Richard III? What did he kind of represent for the history of the United Kingdom? Right. Well, we we, we go back to the 15th century. He was born in uh, 1452. And in 1461, his eldest brother became uh, King of England as Edward IV. And Edward reigned for the next 20 years. He died in 1483. And obviously one would expect that his son would become king. But unfortunately, it's been shown that Edward IV's marriage to his wife, Elizabeth Woodville, was actually bigamous, and so the boys, um, now ever since known as the princes in the town, were actually bastards. They weren't. They were illegitimate. And although illegitimacy in those days didn't mean a great deal, it was sufficient to bar one from the throne. So the next in line is Edward's youngest brother, Richard, Richard Duke of Gloucester. And so Richard is asked by Parliament to become king. He becomes king. There are various reasons we can give as to why he 
promoted his own kingship rather than pushing his nephew, which he could have done. And certainly until the boys were declared illegitimate, Richard was pushing Edward V as king. He was getting documents signed in Edward's name and all the rest of it. But as I say, once um, it's declared that the boys are illegitimate and Richard is asked to be king, he has to seize the moment because we know that the boy's mother almost certainly was plotting against him. And there is historical evidence in the past of Lord's Protector, which is what Richard was, he was Lord Protector, which is basically chief of the council who is responsible for looking after the country. It doesn't mean he is king, but it can mean that he's acting for the king. All of this can get very complicated. Um, But don't worry about your being a dumb American. I am married to an American, and she... Uh, it, that's how it was the society that brought us together. We, you know, this, she understands these things, so I'm sure anybody can give it a little, little try. So Richard becomes king. Unfortunately, there are others still out there who feel that um, Richard shouldn't be king. There are others who feel that they should be king. So his th- two turbulent years of kingship. Well, say they are turbulent because there are various others who um, are against him. Um, the Duke of Buckingham, who at one stage has helped Richard become king, but we, was an unstable character. We think he may have wanted to be king. He certainly had a better right than most people around at the time. Um, and then, of course, we have the the other faction, you know, Richard is of the House of York, we have the House of Lancaster who have been displaced by the House of York, and they have a candidate in Henry Tudor, who at the time is in France, in exile, he gathers an army with the aid of the French king, comes over, and by various means, because of um, one of Richard's supporters is a double dealer, basically, Lord Stanley, but then he is Henry Tudor's stepfather. He's married to the Tudor's mother, Margaret Beaufort. Um, Richard and Henry meet at Battle of Bosworth. Uh, there's foul play, and the Stanleys uh, come in on the opposing side, Richard's opposing side. Henry, and Henry wins the battle, Richard is killed. Uh, so, as I say, it is a very short reign. Um, but during that reign, we know that Richard was doing a lot of good work. He had the laws printed and set out in English rather than the more usual French or Latin. He had his coronation oath. He took that in English so that everybody would know what he was trying to say. He abolished censorship. He instituted a bail. He instituted what we call the court of request, by which the poor people who couldn't afford a lawyer could at least put their cases to the court and hope for justice. For Richard, the saying that might is right no longer applied. And yes, obviously, he had to uh, do the right thing by his magnates, by the, the nobility. But at the same time, he wanted justice for all. It wasn't just 
you know, if you've got the power and you've got the money, you, you, you've got your way. If you, uh, if, if you were poor and came up before the courts, Richard instructed his, his judges that they were to be fair. And great changes were available. If Richard had lived, if he had won Bosworth, it's a, one can only contemplate what the kingdom would have been like, but uh, you know, there would have been a lot. This, of course, is the old trouble we get into the realms of, of what ifs. But uh, you know, if he had won, what would have happened? Okay, there would have been sort of things. Would this country still be Catholic? Would it? You know, would we have had the Reformation? Yes, I think we would have had a Reformation, but it may just have been different. And we wouldn't have had the glorious Elizabethan age, but who knows? We may have had a glorious Ricardian age, and then and you know, whatever follows from that. And Richard was a an interesting man, an enigmatic man, and he had the potential to be a very great king. Unfortunately, we will never know whether he could have fulfilled that potential because he was killed. When you're dealing with this period in history, you know, fourteen late 1400s and all of that, how hard is it to do the research? Because I'm sure that the documents are hard to come by. Yes, some are, some aren't. Of course, it is the, um, the documentation. Some of it is there. We do have various um, documents still surviving from that time. Various archives can be uh, used and various libraries and the great colleges and the universities do have some of these documents. But yes, there are some pieces that are absolutely crucial to the period that are missing. Uh, for instance, we do not have Richard's will. One assumes that going into battle, he must have made one, you know, at least at disposing of his kingdom if he were unlucky enough to be killed. I mean, 32 years old, and he didn't expect to lose the, lose the fight. But you know, even so, one still puts one's house in order before beforehand. I there are documents that we would like to know more. If occasionally items do turn up, somebody starts to go through the oh that chest in the corner that grandfather left behind, and you find, you know all of a sudden you find deep down the bottom there's something. The next kind of thing is to prove that it's genuine and not somebody's put put it together. Um, but uh, yes, it would be lovely to have all sorts of uh, documents that uh, no longer either no longer exist or they've been tucked away so securely that uh, as yet nobody's found them. But we live in hope. So, what is your take on the way that he is portrayed in Shakespeare versus who you have found Richard to actually be? Well, of course, one has to remember that Shakespeare was writing a play, so the facts don't matter too much. Hey, Shakespeare does this with a lot of his histories, and not just Richard, of course, but all of the uh, the kings. The, uh, the, the the facts, if they get in the way, they get converted. And Macbeth, which is wonderful, another wonderful play with an evil villain, especially with his wife, but that doesn't stack up if you read the Scottish history. No, Richard is a great play. One assumes to some extent that he may have been writing a sort of blood and thunder story to match with his, t- his own particular rival, Christopher Marlowe, who was writing a you know, wonderful Sturm and Drang type of uh, 
of works. Um, also, you have to remember the times when Richard, uh, when Shakespeare was writing, and he was writing for the Tudors. He was writing at the time of Queen Elizabeth. You didn't go around explaining that the Queen's grandfather was a Welsh usurping bastard. Um, but well, at least if you did, you didn't do it for long. Um, no, I, it's a great, it, it's a great play. I know a lot of my members don't necessarily go along with that, but it, it's a great play. It's full of humour. It's it's a wonderful role for the actor to play. Um, it's just not history, I, as I point out in one of my uh, one of my talks. You know, to uh, quote Ira Gershon, it ain't necessarily so. I. I enjoy the play. I've seen it many times, but I know the facts behind it. I, one of the great characters in the play, and the productions of the play without her are very much the poorer, is Margaret of Anjou, the queen, the widow of Henry VI. Um, but by the time that Richard was king, she died in exile, in poverty, in France. I... I could go on, and the, the one that I really love is it comes from Henry VI, Part Two, Shakespeare's play, which includes Richard of Gloucester. Has Richard of Gloucester killing the Duke of Somerset at the first battle of St Albans? At the first battle of Al St Albans in, 19, in 1456, Richard was not yet three years old. So you know, Shakespeare must have known he was twisting the facts. But he was writing a play or plays for the time, and they great pieces of um, drama and literature they are. They're just not history, and one has to remember that when one is reading and watching them. They are drama, not history. Obviously, history is written by the victors, so <laughs> oh, <yes. laughs> the, so the, the the Tudors win, and that becomes, as you say, you know Henry VIII and Elizabeth, and, and those are yeah. the the ones that we really know. So, do you think that there was obviously this negative history that was written about Richard, and then Shakespeare comes along to write the play and sort of incorporates those feelings, that attitude into the work? I think that is very much the case. Yes, I. First of all, Henry VII, who is the victor at Bosworth, he has to blacken Richard's name. He has to make, you know, give a reason for why he's come to rescue the country from this evil villain. Um, the fact that most of the people in the country had no, uh, no idea that they were being ruled by an evil villain. They were just being ruled by the king. Um, so Henry has to have Richard's name blackened. Uh, one of the people that starts on this is Hollingshed. And then, of course, we get Sir Thomas More, who writes his history. We suspect More never anticipated that his history would be published. It was, he was written, writing it as an exercise. And there are those who suggest that More's history was, in fact, a somewhat interestingly contrived attack on Henry and Henry VII. That's for others to discuss. Um, but so, you, 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 Shakespeare comes along, he wants to write a play, he's writing histories, but he suddenly decides he's going to write the history of Richard III. Interestingly, he doesn't call it a history. 
the play on whilst the plays on Henry the Sixth and Henry the Fifth are history, you know, referred to as the history of the, the Richard the Third is the tragedy of Richard the Third. So did Shakespeare think at the time this is so distorted from the, the real facts of history? I cannot call it a history, or did he have other mean, mind, things in mind? We don't know. But um, Shakespeare comes along and he writes this wonderful play. But he wants a black-hearted villain, and so you know, you know, Richard becomes you know I, uh, this character who is not set up to for sportive tricks. Uh, we're told he's a hunchback and that he's got he's lame and various other disabilities, all of which have been proved to be wrong. But uh, nonetheless, you've got to make Richard out in the play to be as black and as evil as possible. And so uh, Shakespeare does this, and um, Richard is a villain. He's probably using more Moore's text as uh, part of his uh, uh, research, and um, so it goes on. And of course, Shakespeare is such a playwright and writes such amazing and great stories that people start to believe them, and so it, go, so it goes on and right down until the beginning of the... Well, doubts start to be expressed during the reign of the king that we call James I, who was, of course, James VI of Scotland. Uh, and uh, he's, uh, during his reign, people start to express their doubts, and they, of course they can, but then it's safe to do so. And this goes on through history, but... It, it sways both ways, but in the last 50 years or so, people are beginning to look at uh, the Shakespearean um, story with rather more um, respect for the truth, shall I put it that way, and they begin to think, and a lot of people you know, are only too well aware that Shakespeare was writing drama, not history. I, I give this talk on Richard, and I... I begin with a quote from the play and I then follow by saying thus according to that well-known historian Shakespeare and it always gets a laugh because everybody knows that Shakespeare is not history. Great drama but not history. It's interesting that you say that he didn't appear to have these these maladies because there was a, hmm. I think I think it was a, a documentary that I saw recently in which I think it was the society had worked with uh, some folks to find his body. Yes. And I, know, I know where you're going. I know where you're going. And, we're, we're referring to the scoliosis, the curvature of the spine of the yeah. skeleton that was found. Yeah, the point about this is a scoliosis is a different... Uh, and, um, it's very difficult how you say this without it becoming emotive. It's a different deformity of the spine. Uh, Shakespeare's Richard is a hunchback, which means that his distorted spine is visible, particularly from from the side. If you look at the uh, the king from the side, he's all crippled and doubled up. Shakespeare also gives him a withered arm. And in many of the productions, they give him a strange, deformed leg as well. Um, now, if we go back to the skeleton that was found in the car park in Leicester, uh, and which has now been proved to be Richard, he has a scoliosis, which is a sideways curvature. Now, 
given that in certain positions, if he bends over, for instance, it might still give him a strange-looking spine, which some might describe as being a hunchback. There is no contemporary evidence that Richard was obviously deformed. Yes, he must have had that curvature, and it must have been visible if he was stripped down. Surely his wife would have known about it. But when he was dressed in his fine uh, robes, a tailor would have known how to hide that. His armourer would have known how to hide it. It has been suggested by some of the experts in the field, one of whom is a scoliotic, and he, is, he wears armour, and his armour has been designed in such a way that his scoliosis is not a problem. It doesn't become particularly visible. So, yes, there, there, there is this curvature of the spine, but it's not a hunchback. It's a, it's a different... It is a different thing altogether. Also, there is no evidence in the in the skeleton of a withered arm. His arm bones are perfectly normal. They are a trifle thin. They're described as being gracile, but that doesn't stop the fact that Richard knew how to throw a sword about or an axe. He was a doubting warrior, and nobody has ever denied that. Even his enemies at the end say how you know, Bosworth, he was fighting bravely to the end. Um, and there's no evidence that there was any deformity in his leg bones. I mean, okay, his feet are missing. They've never been found. They were lost in Victorian times, almost certainly, when some work was being done near to the grave. But... Um, no, it, it, it's, this curvature business is basically a question of definition. I mean, Shakespeare made him out to be a nasty hunchback with a withered arm and all this. But the point then, of course, was that a deformed body was the external um, appearance of a deformed mind. And, of course, we're trying to portray Richard... I said we, the, the, the Shakespearean Richard, is trying to portray um, you know, a nasty, twisted, evil piece of work who, you know, a rotter, the devil incarnate, or as Shakespeare has it in, in, the, in Henry Tudor's speech, a bloody tyrant and a homicide. The thing I kind of find funny is that they may have known about this slight physical imperfection. Now it gets blown out of proportion, and it appears from your research that they might have known about the history, and then they blew that out of proportion in terms of the play. So there's sort of this parallel track of physical and historical, I guess, uh, explosion (laughs) and license. Well, if you take the expression, there's there's no smoke without fire, you could say that has been applied. But um, I think what is, is just a sort of slight smouldering has been turned into a full-scale blaze that, uh, you know, burning the forest down. No, I, I, as I say, we now know that Richard had a spinal deformity, uh, but it was, I, it's the sort of thing that if we see every day. Um, I'm, uh, as I say, I'm retired. I'm a retired radiologist. So, you know, during my my working lifetime, I saw many spinal uh, X-rays, and uh, a scoliosis in various degrees is not at all uncommon. Whereas a hunchback, the kyphosis, the the other 
form of curvature. You see one a year, if you if that. Whereas um, the sideways, the scoliosis, maybe one a week, maybe five or six a month, depending on how things went, in varying degrees. But uh, I I will admit that when I saw the pictures of the skeleton of Richard III, I was somewhat taken aback by its severity. Uh, but. Uh, at the same time, as I say, we know he was as described as a doughty warrior. He you know, sat his horse and uh, he swung his axe or his sword according to what he was carrying at the time and uh, people died. You know, it's reported in the Battle of Bosworth that uh, you know, he, he killed Henry Standard Barrier. So, uh, yeah, these are people who uh, know what they're doing. Can you tell me a little bit more about the whole finding of the body? That sounds absolutely fascinating to me. Back in the 1970s, a theory was put forward as to where the Greyfriars might be. It's it's known historical fact that Richard was buried hastily in front of the high altar of the Greyfriars Church in Leicester. But, of course, with all the passage of time and the destruction of the churches during the reign of Henry VIII and whatever, um, the, the, the church is lost. Okay, there's a fair idea as to where it might be because we know that there's I mean, the, one of the Lord's Mayor of Leicester, Herrick, has a house there and a garden, etc., etc. So, okay, coming up to date, we get to Philippa Langley, who's... The, does is, is very interested in trying to find Richard's remains so that we can give him a decent burial, which he didn't get at the time. Okay. She works with John Ashdown Hill, who's done a lot of research work on finding where the Greyfriars might be. Philippa puts together a plan, which she then tries around various television companies, funnily enough, in order to try and raise the money to do the dig. None of the companies are interested, except for one, who says, yes, of course we'll fund it if you can guarantee finding King Richard's remains. Now, of course, at that time, that was a ridiculous idea. You know, there's nobody, uh, even when the archaeologists came to doing it, they said it was a one in a million chance. Uh, now, of course, we're all wishing Philip had taken the, the television company up on it, but never mind, you know, these things all add to the humour. So eventually she takes the plan to the University of Leicester and their archaeological surface. They think it's a good idea, but that's because they want to find the Greyfriars. They don't think there's any chance of finding King Richard. She persuades them to go ahead with it. They, we raise the money, the society raises a lot of the money for the dig not for the research work that has to come later. Um, and on the 25th of August, 2012, the ground is broken in the car park. Now, as I say, the, the car park had been pinned down by various other pieces of research. And there is this wonderful story that um, Philippa had this feeling that uh, Richard was going to be under the letter R for reserved in the car park. And of course, as we now know, that is exactly where he was. Um, ground is broken on the, 20, on the 25th of August, and before very long, 
bones, leg bones are found, um, everything has to stop while an exhumation license is obtained from the Ministry of Justice. Uh, that is done, and the dig starts again. The whole of the skeleton is revealed, it's carefully removed, it's taken to Leicester University, and the studies are done, which confirm that it is Richard, uh, Richard III. Really, that you know, that is it. Uh, up until uh, up to date, uh, now we the the studies have been done, and we know it's Richard. And we, but uh, it it was so amazing that on the very first day bones were found and that these were in fact the bones of Richard III you know they could have been anybody they could have been a monk they could have been one of the abbots they could even have been um, one of the benefactors of the Grey Friars such as the other skeleton that has been found which is female and that is thought to be a, a lady who gave money to the, the, the Grey Friars and uh, was consequently given, you know, a burial in the church uh, as uh, recompense, you know, fire insurance. But uh, Richard Buckley, the lead archaeologist who led the the actual dig, um, you know, he, he said it was a one in a million chance that we would find the king, but we'll do the, uh, if you're prepared to pay, we'll do the dig anyway, because I'd like to find the Greyfriars Church. Uh, he said, if we find the king, I'll eat my hat. I believe somebody did actually make him a cake in the shape of the hat so that he, he could eat that. But, um, yes, it's a remarkable find, and totally unexpected. I mean, as far as the society and our members are concerned, you, know, it's, you could say that uh, the actual finding of the king is the greatest piece of Ricardian history in 500 years. I had great jubilation at the next... Um, society annual general meeting that followed the actual finding of the uh, of the king's remains, and at that time they hadn't been identified, but the circumstantial evidence was so very strong. Uh, we had one of the you know, the best AGMs that we've had in many a year with so many people there, and we uh, we praised Philippa and we gave her an award for her work. And uh, later on, we've done similar things for John Ashdown Hill. So they've both been given uh, life membership of the society and things of that nature, recognizing what they have done. You said that uh, there was a plan to give him a proper burial. Has that taken place, or is that yet to be done? Uh, no, no, that is still to be done. Um, this is where it starts to get slightly political, and I will be treading on eggshells as I give you an answer. Uh, according to the University of Leicester, when they were granted the license to exhume, it included a recognition that the remains, if proven to be Richard III, would be buried in the nearby church, the nearest uh, consecrated ground to where he was found, and that is Leicester Cathedral. Um, shortly after the announcement was made in February last year, a group claiming to be, and I believe that they are, descendants of Richard's family. Now, they can't be descendants of Richard himself because he has no descendants, um, but they are descendants of the House of York and in particular possibly descendants from Anne of Exeter, who is Richard's eldest sister. 
um, they came together saying they are not happy with the way things have been done. Since they are Richard's family, 16th, 17th um, great nephews and nieces, which uh, has been argued in court is not necessarily close family, but okay. They came forward and said that they were not happy with how things were being done. They feel they should have been consulted as they were or are firmly. And um, they want the whole process to be reviewed in the courts. This then became a what was known as a judicial review. They were granted the review and the review began in November of last year, was then adjourned, and the review was completed um, 10 days ago, 13th and 14th of March, in the High Court in London. We now await the results of the review. The judges, uh, having heard all the evidence, both for and against the way things were done, um, they have now gone away to discuss and we are told that they will let us know their decision as soon as possible. Now that could be any time between now and the end of April or later dates have been suggested. We just don't know when they will come forward with their result. If their result is that everything was done as it should be then we presume that the reburial in Leicester Cathedral will go ahead. If they say that it wasn't, then we assume that we then go into a process of consultation. Now, we don't know exactly how that will be achieved, whether there will be a body of non-interested people set up to hear the evidence, from those people who want this, that, or the other place for the burial. Um, all of this is very much up in the air at the moment until we get the result from the High Court. Various places have been suggested as to where the remains should be reburied. Unfortunately, as I said earlier, we don't have Richard's will, so we don't know where he himself was planning to be buried. A logical answer would be Westminster Abbey, where his wife is buried, and where kings tended to be buried. Although his elder brother, Edward IV, is in St. George's Chapel in Windsor, Windsor Castle. So you know, Richard may have wanted to be buried there. Um, as I say, the archaeological site would be Leicester, Leicester Cathedral. But there is an argument, too, as to why he might have wanted to be buried in York, in York Minster. He lived a lot of his early life in Yorkshire. He liked York. He gave money to York Minster. But then, so he gave money to other places, too. So we just don't know. And it may be that at the end of this judicial review, there will be this meeting um, with as I say, disinterested, um, possibly privy councillors, people of that nature, who will act as the panel. And they will receive the evidence from the, the family, from historians, from ourselves perhaps, um, as to what we know. And they will then 
make the decision. It's all very much up in the air. And if we in this country struggle to understand it, I cannot imagine how folks like yourself <laughs> who don't even, you know, don't necessarily fully understand the English judiciary, let alone what it's all about. You have my sympathy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that was part of the reason why the country was founded. They couldn't understand it either. So, (laughs) 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 For you on a personal level, what makes uh, Richard a compelling figure? When I was a a young lad, good God, 50 years ago, uh, sorry, I'm 67 now, um, one wet Wednesday afternoon, instead of throwing us out onto the games field and making us run around in the rain, um, we got taken into the uh, school canteen where we were shown the Olivier film of Shakespeare's play. And I was fascinated by it, not only by the, the play, but by this, this character who I just felt afterwards, you know, surely nobody could be that evil and get away with it. Um, you know, because, of course, in the play, you know, he's shown disposing of everybody that gets in his way, and just as others have been known to do. Um, anyway, I, you know, it sort of stayed in my mind. And then during my working life, early, early years, I uh, I came across an article about this strange society, the Richard III Society, and I thought, well, that sounds fascinating. And then I found myself working in Leicester, and so just before I moved back south, I went to Bosworth, the the battlefield site, and I found details of the society. I wrote to the secretary, and I joined. And the more I got to know about all of this, I began to get really... I got hooked. And it's difficult to say why, but I knew that something had to be done to put forward this uh, this man and get the truth known. I, his cognizance, his badge, of course, is the white boar. And I'm afraid my mother tended to call me that after a while because so he changed the spelling. I could actually go on and be quite boring about Richard III. It stuck. I became um, chairman of one of the branches of the society, the London branch, which I did for several years. And then in the uh, mid-90s, I was asked to join the main committee of the society, and then in 2002, when our then chairman had to st- stand down through ill health, I was asked, would I like to, <laughs> would I be willing to take on the chairmanship? And uh, somewhat hesitantly, I took it on, having made sure that everybody else was willing to support me in that role, and they were. I won't say I've never looked back, because there are times when you do sort of wonder what have you taken on and why. But it's been, and it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride at times, but I don't regret any of it. And why I'm doing it, why Richard III, it's very difficult to explain. But this is a man... I won't say he's taken over my life, but because uh, I do have one or two other interests outside. But uh, this is a man for whom I want to see justice. As I said, we were saying earlier on, when you asked me, you know, about the society, what its aims and its membership, etc. 
there is this desire to see justice done. I mean, basically, we don't think that the accounts that you read, especially the 19th century accounts, and obviously the Tudor accounts, they just don't stack up. And uh, we want to secure a reassessment of the period and of the, uh, the history, the role in English history of King Richard. And I'm, you know, as I say, I, I, I'm a, although I'm, I can't tell you exactly why, very few people can. You say to them, why Richard? And, well, because. And then they falter and they come to, you know, well, I don't know, but all I know is that we've got to do something for this man. And that, of course, is also is how the project, the Looking for Richard project, which eventually found him and is now trying to get him as a decent, dignified reburial. And that's how it all began, is that, you know, we sort of felt that this man needed, he'd been badly done by by history, and his, his reputation has been badly done by by history, and his body was badly done by, by the Tudors. Let's get this all put right. We wait and see. Thank you so much for taking the time and, and sharing right, the knowledge. Yeah. Well, as you may go, I'm happy to talk about Richard at any time, <laughs> at great length. <laughs> well, it was a real pleasure to hear it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. My pleasure. Thanks to Dr. Stone for coming on the show. You can find out more about the Richard III Society over at our website, projection-booth.com. So we've heard a little bit about the man. Let's talk a little bit more about the movie here. I totally dig this whole alternate history kind of thing that they have going. We spoke a little bit about kind of this Italian fascism thing that Julie Taymor was embracing when it came to her uh, adaptation of Titus. But this adaptation of Richard III had been done on stage before with this kind of new look and feel to it, but definitely embraced and brought to the screen beautifully by Richard Loncrane. And I just love the way that we have this kind of it's it's almost like what if the Nazis had won the war, but I guess it's kind of more like what if fascism had really taken off in England. And I love the look of the uniforms and the use of the boar's head and just this kind Kind of, uh, it's interesting to me that we are talking a lot about Queen Elizabeth in this film. They are talking about Elizabeth I when it comes to the real history, but it really kind of would fit in with the age and everything of Elizabeth II. So you can kind of transport things a couple hundred years fairly easily, and it really fits in with the times and the way that that just the world was kind of. You know, under so much strife at this you know early point of the 20th century. And another thing I think people have to realize is that before America got into World War II in 1941, fascism wasn't seen as that bad of a thing. Uh, 
the Americans backed Mussolini in Italy. There was a fascist party. There was the Bund Party in America. There was uh, national fascist groups in the UK as well, especially coming out of the 30s in the Great Depression. There was this feeling that, well, socialism isn't going to help us. Well, there was sort of this battle between all this heated socialist rhetoric uh, of the 20s and, and helping out the common man. And then there was also this idea that it was, of course, the immigrants and nationalism is where we need to go. We need to bring back the pride of the country. And that's what that was really about. Up until basically America got into World War II, fascism was uh, was friendly, at least to us here in America. I wouldn't go so far as to say that America, you know, there was a lot of support for you know fascism in, in America. There were certainly groups and, and people like Henry Ford who were kind of very you know right-wing reactionary political people who didn't see the, these incoming fascist groups and governments you know coming into power in Europe as as all that bad that there might be something good about it but uh, certainly American government never supported anything like that and and it's the kind of thing that as people learned more about and as the fascists started to take control any kind of support really seemed to dwindle at least as far as broad popular opinion um, you know America winds up taking this kind of a hands-off approach to to you know, this isolationist approach to what's going on in Europe, but that doesn't. But but certainly, it's it's not very supportive of any fascist governments, especially once they you know really begin to take control of their countries in the late 30s. But if I can seg- segue that into the film here, that does kind of you know really play into this film that uh, using that. I, th- I think uh, Ian McKellen had said that um you know he really saw Richard III as a kind of you know Hitleresque leader somebody who could kind of gather support by the kind of you know personal magnetism and and then to just uh, take control and and abuse his power you know so much and I think Ian McKellen actually even played Hitler uh, one time uh, on for a for a British TV production so he's actually kind of you know already rehearsed you know, how he feels about this role and, and to place him there. And the movie is so completely wrapped up in that world. They really create, it's, it's a very deep, and, if, and, and when you watch the film, I mean, the set design is very deep, and they've really got all these tiny little details that, that play into this is the era that we're looking at. And it's shocking to, to, to what I found out that, you know, it initially only had like five million pound budget, and it was increased by a million pounds or something like that, or a couple million pounds, and to have a film, and there's tanks and explosions and all that set design and the costuming, and it really looks like a major, big Hollywood production, and they were working on a small budget, so I find that quite astounding that they were able to create this complete world, much like Titus did as well, but in, in, in this case, for really not a lot of money for a film of that size. Well, I think the reveal of the character is so well done in this movie, the way that we have this kind of you know, wartime kind of uh, setting and everything, and it, it just is going on as normal as wartime possibly can be, this whole kind of, you know, behind-the-scenes area, and then hearing the, the rockets and everything and the tank crashing through the wall and and this gas gas mask figure coming in and shooting all these people and then the reveal that this is Richard III. I mean, you you don't get too many uh, openings like that. I mean, this is, you know, kind of the reveal of Darth Vader for Star Wars. You know, this is, is just showing, like, this guy means business. You better watch out for him. Especially that opening. I mean, if you didn't know that you were going to go sit in a Shakespeare film and you just saw that opening with the men in what's supposed to be the king's forward field camp 
where the war's happening and they're sitting there and they're eating and they're looking at the papers and it's all very 1930s and then the tank crashes through the wall, as you said, and all that stuff. You would think that you're going to see some British film, wartime British movie. There's nothing in the, really in the opening that gives you any idea that uh, that you're going to see a Shakespeare film. And and that's the thing that I find so fascinating about, like you were saying, the, the design and the visual aspect is that there is none of that, as we talked about before, men in tights speaking in arch-British accents. <laughs> and it's silent. For, well, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not, there's, there's no Shakespearean dialogue for 8 minutes and 45 seconds. You get this long opening where you're just kind of introduced to this world piece by piece, and a couple people would just say, you know, goodnight, Father, that kind of thing. And, and But they don't. there's no lines up until... And then all three, not only that first scene where the tank crashes through, but then the big party scene and, and the arrival of, of Rivers, but the Robert Downey Jr. and everyone's dancing, and then you finally don't get to the first Shakespeare Shakespeare line until Ian McKellen goes up to give the uh, now it's the winner of our discontent speech and and to to do that for eight minutes and forty five seconds so to not play any Shakespeare dialogue really helps this film establish itself and even the whole course of the film it's an hour and forty minutes long and that's that's nearly unheard of for a Shakespeare film to be that short and 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 the whole thing winds up being this very kind of tight war wartime political thriller which is what they're shooting for and, and, and which is what they're trying to make and, and it works very well to have that a Shakespeare film as um, that kind of uh, thriller film in that whole idea of the now is the winter of our discontent speech as a public speech and then kind of doing that push in on his mouth and then suddenly becomes a private speech when we cut to him going into the bathroom, that's super ornate bathroom and him now speaking just to us and, you know, doing his business and all this. It's such a private, I mean, very private moment and him confiding in the audience with really what his feelings are. I found that to be very effective as well. And there are so many times where he's addressing the audience. It's, it's, we are, it's almost like a Woody Allen film. Yeah, it's, at a, it's in a urinal, you know? I mean, he's with all the stalls there, and I, I don't think, I think it's the only time in a Shakespeare film you're at a urinal while someone is delivering, you know, one of the most famous soliloquies. Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this son of York. <laughs> clouds that lowered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean buried. Now are our brows bound with victorious wreaths. <laughs> our bruised arms hung up for monuments. Our stern alarms changed to merry meetings. Our dreadful marches to delightful measures. Grim-visaged war has smoothed his wrinkled front. And now, instead of mounting barbed steeds to fight the souls of fearful adversaries, he capers nimbly in a lady's chamber to the lascivious pleasing of a lute. But I that am not shaped for sportive tricks nor made to court an amorous looking glass. I that am rudely stamped, deformed, unfinished, 
But before my time into this breathing world, scarce half made up. And that's so lamely and unfashionable that dogs bark at me as I halt my Why, in this weak piping time of peace, I'd no delight to pass away the time. Unless to spy my shadow and the sun and descant on my own deformity. Why, I can smile. And murder while I smile. Wet my cheeks with artificial tears and frame my face to all occasions. And therefore, since I cannot prove a lover, I'm determined to prove a villain and hate the idle pleasures of these days. Plots have I laid to set my brothers, Clarence and King Edward. In deadly hate, the one against the other. I could throw you a touch, and it, and it kind of, uh, I think it also kind of serves to endear us to Richard III right off the bat, because as evil as this character is, the power of this character, why people like it so much, is that he's so much fun to watch. Yeah, I was really reminded a lot of Aaron the Moore while we, I was watching this and just thinking, this guy loves to be evil. Yeah. That's to the 10th degree. And it's, it's interesting because the other great Shakespearean villain is Iago. And while you, 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 nobody ever warms to Iago watching him, I mean, maybe you could, but, you know, you'd be pretty warped yourself if you did. Um, but Iago is, is evil, and, and the things he's doing are really awful, and the things Richard's doing are even worse. But he's just having fun doing it. And, um, you know, looking, and in the film, looking at the camera and talking to us and smiling, um, and that he's really having a good time. And, and the stage history of this play is like that as well, you know, with Richard addressing, you know, the audience and telling them all these wonderful, evil things he's going to do. And the play starts that way with his soliloquy. And, and um, it's just, it's, it, I, and I guess the most important thing in this picture, though, is, is that Ian McKellen can pull it off in that this is one of my favorite performances on film, not just a Shakespeare film. I think his performance in this film is so absolutely wonderful. He's over the top sometimes, but it's always, it always seems appropriate. It's never like, it's never just camp. It's just, this is the time when this character needs to be going over the top and it seems right for him. And, and the whole time you never see someone having so much fun, you know, committing so many murders <laughs> in a film. We talked about that, almost nine minutes of setup for a movie that's only a hundred it's only it's only an hour and 40 minutes and as for the play itself and pardon my ignorance because i haven't seen a stage version of this does it start with this is the winter of our discontent made glorious yeah, now, now is the winter of our discontent is the first line of the play although the stage tradition of richard often doesn't have that and even olivier's film doesn't have that um usually there's a little bit about um kind of Edward taking over and there was a playwright by the name of Collie Kibber who lived in the uh, who wrote in the 18th century was a big playwright and theater manager in the 18th century and his version of Richard that kind of beginning he had this opening 
business about King Edward taking the throne kind of thing. And that was often used on stage. And it was such a big tradition that Olivier thought it was fine for him to use it, you know, in his film. And he did. And the first actually, you know, scene of lines in Olivier's film are actually not written by Shakespeare. <laughs> um, and uh, But in, in the play, it is that speech. And also, it's a long play. It's one of Shakespeare's longest plays. And, you know, an uncut production of this on stage is over three hours. So you can imagine how long it could be, you know, making a film of it. Branagh could do it uncut Richard III, and it would be, you know, three and a half hours. So at this point, after he gives his, you know, I would say there's two really well-known lines in this play that have caught on into the, the English language. That one, obviously, and one later we'll talk about. But he then goes on to basically say yeah this is all well and great but just watch as you were saying mike you know it's going to be fun so what he decides to do is set up his brothers against each other and one is uh, as you said the king edward who richard had fought on his behalf and that's what we see at the beginning and then his brother clarence and he decides to set the two off against each other and try to get them to uh, basically you know bump each other off is what i've been uh, led to believe well the king is is ill and is going to die so richard just needs the king to die and by by causing this all this kind of turmoil and 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 and, and having his his other brother murdered that in the play at least is is so upsetting to the king that it hastens his death and let us point out that George, the Duke of Clarence, is played by Nigel Hawthorne, who gave a brilliant performance in Demolition Man. <laughs> and let us point out that I was shocked because I'd forgotten that McNulty is in this film. Uh, Dominic West plays uh, Richmond, who is, will become Henry the uh, this, uh, Henry the Seventh, and I had completely forgotten that he was in this film. And it's his first film as well. Yeah, this movie has an amazing cast. There are so many people. I for a little while, I thought that I was in kind of a um, like a training meeting for uh, the Harry Potter films. There were so many <laughs> British actors in here. There, there are. I mean, Jim Broadbent is really great, and 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 I actually really like Kristen Scott Thomas in this. I think she's fantastic. Um, uh, the guy who plays Hastings is in this is a is a is a little known British character actor by the name of Jim Carter, who has one of oh, my favorite voice. voices in all of them. Oh. I love him. I wish he would. I wish he had gotten more lead roles in his career when he was younger. I really like him as an actor. Adrian Dunbar's in this, and Maggie Smith. Um, it's a great cast. And then here's my end, but. Um, but the, I, I think Annette Benning and Robert Downey Jr. are the weak links in this film. I never did incense his majesty against your brother Clarence, but have been an earnest advocate to plead for him. You may deny that you... She may, my lord. She may, Lord Rivers, but who knows not, sir? She may do more, sir, than denying that. She may help you to many great promotions. What may she not? My lord of Gloucester, I have too long borne your blunt upbraidings and bitter scoffs. I had rather be a country serving maid than a great queen in this condition to be so baited, scorned, and stormed at. By heaven, I will acquaint his majesty. Tell him. And spare not. Look, what I have said, I will about it in presence of the king. Before you were queen, yes, or your husband king, I was a pack horse in his great affairs. In all that time, you and your brother here were sympathetic to the enemy. Let me put in your mind, if you forget what you have been before and what you are, indeed what I have been and what I am. 
a bottled spider. <laughs> My dear brother-in-law, in those busy days when now you try to prove us enemies, we followed then Edward, our lawful king. So should she you if you should be her king. If I should be? I'd rather be a peddler. And I, I guess it's their own, you know, acting background that they don't really, that they haven't had any real training in doing Shakespeare. But it's it's more than that. I just think it's, when they speak, they speak in poetry. And you hear these British actors, and when they deliver their lines, it doesn't sound like poetry that they're spouting. And and a lot of it has to do with, with you know, with cadence and with, you know, using your voice to go up and down to register your voice. And Americans don't really have this. And Americans tend to put emotion, try to put emotion into the deliveries. And then it's, but it still sounds like you're just reading or reciting poetry. It doesn't sound like actual dialogue. Uh, and for me, they're the weakest parts of the movie uh, are Annette Benning and uh, Robert Downey Jr. When you said that you had some problems with some of the performances in here, my mind immediately jumped to Annette Benning. I, yeah, she just never has done it for me. Um, she's been okay in certain films, but she's never been like, wow, what a performance that Annette Benning gave. It just, she always seems to just kind of miss the mark for me. And Robert Downey Jr., he did seem to be kind of sleepwalking through this one a little bit. For some reason, I kept remi- being reminded of, uh, I guess it was when he was wearing that Indian headdress, I was reminded of Sherilyn uh, uh, Fenn's little brother character from Twin Peaks, who just kind of shows up and then goes away. Johnny, I think his name was. And yeah, he kind of rings a little false for me as well. But Annette Benning was just big sourdough for me. The thing that's interesting, and you'll hear in a bit with the interview with Richard Longcrane, is that originally it was Angelica Houston in that role. And I don't think Angelica Houston has done Shakespeare either. I don't, but boy, that would have been a different performance, a different kind of presence in the film, you know? Yeah, just Annette Penning has just always seemed so white bread to me. You know, just nothing flavorful about her. She's pretty, she's nice, you know, and but it's just like, eh, I don't know. She just never really can do much for me. I love being the grifters. Angelica Houston? No, uh, Annette Benning. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, she was good in that. And she's all right and like, the kids are all right and a couple other things. But it's just like, you know, she just she shows up and, you know, kind of does her thing. And it's not like you're thinking back to, like, oh, yeah, she was so good in Mars Attacks. That was just amazing. Well, Robert Downey Jr. in that it because you can see that kind of charming Robert Downey Jr. thing that he does. And he's actually very good just walking around in the film and, and, and being himself, and it's just then when he has to open his mouth and tell her lines, I think, geez, you know, you can't do this. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely one. I mean, after he got off the substances, it's like, wow, here's the actor. Here's yeah. the guy. He showed up now. Out of the women in the film, the the, the actresses, Kristen Scott Thomas does a really nice job, and especially in the scene with, with McKellen as, as Richard and her as Lady Anne, and they're over the body of her husband, and they're go- and he's proposing to her, and there's this whole back and forth. And I think that she handles that amazingly well. What black magician conjures up this fiend to stop devoted charitable deeds? Sweet saint, for charity be not so cursed. Foul devil, for God's sake, hence. And trouble me not, for you have made this happy earth my hell. If you delight to see your heinous deed, behold the pattern of your butchery. Lady... You know no rules of charity. 
Villainy, you know no law of God nor man. That self-divine perfection of a woman, of this supposed crime to give me leave by circumstance, but to acquit myself. Did you not kill my husband? I grant you, yes. You grant me, Hedgehog? Then God grant me too, you may be damned for that wicked deed. Gentle Lady Anne. Oh, he was gentle, mild and virtuous. The fitter for the king of heaven, who has him. And you are any place but hell. Yes, one place else, if you will hear me name it. Some dungeon. Your bedchamber. Let's leave this keen encounter of our wits. Your beauty, which did haunt me in my sleep, could make me undertake the death of all the world. So I might live one hour in your sweet bosom? If I thought that, I tell you, homicide, I would rend that beauty from my cheeks. And what's, what's surprising in, in that scene is that you have to believe that Richard can come in and woo this woman whose husband, you know, is, he, you know he is just killed. And, and he's killed her father-in-law and, you know, I mean, and, and he's personally done it on the battlefield. Um, so for him to do that seems so, you know, unbelievable that he could. And Olivier, when he made his film, actually didn't think the audience would buy it. So he cut the scene into two pieces. He shows the beginning and then do it and then cut to some other stuff. And then, and then Richard comes back to her. So Olivier has, her, has Richard working on her at two different moments to, to make that true. Um, and... In this film, and especially in this film, when so many lines are cut, I mean, that's, that, that seems a fraction of, of what it is in the play. Um, you really have to believe it. I think she sells it really well, but they don't. It, it's not so crazy where you believe that she's in love with him at the end of it. She just has this look on her face, this kind of deadened, resigned look that, oh, my God, I've lost. I, uh, you know, that, that powerless look. He has me, and I can do nothing but submit right now. That, that's really great work by her, and, and really great work by Ian McKellen, when he takes that ring, when he puts his finger in his mouth and pulls the ring off and the saliva is still on it because he can only do everything one-handed in the film, and then he slips it on her on her finger, and it's so, it's, it's lewd, you know? It's, it's this kind of audaciously sexual and a little bit gross and, and, um, and, and erotic, but in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a very dirty way. That's usually how people describe me. <laughs> but of course. Yeah. But of course, son. <laughs> and then and then that scene ends and he goes it's my it's, it's my, my favorite speech in the film is was ever woman in this humor wooed, was ever woman in this humor won and he gives this gleeful speech at the end of that and the way McKellen does it, and even at the end of it, the music's playing in the back of this, this great, you know, jaunty 30s, 1930s music, and, and he dances up the steps and thrusts his arm in the air, and it's, it's very over the top, but it works, I think, so well. And again, it works so well at a point where you should hate this guy on the screen for manipulating someone like this, and then he has so much fun doing it, I can't help but wanting, I want to see you manipulate more people. Oh, you'll get your chance. <laughs> Was ever woman in this humor wound? Was ever woman in this humor what? I'll have her, but I'll not keep her long. Huh? I, who killed her husband and his father, <laughs> to take her in her heart's extremist hate with curses in her mouth, tears in her eyes, and then to win her. All the world to nothing. <laughs> Upon my life, she finds, although I cannot myself to be a marvellous, proper man, I'll entertain a score or two of tailors to study fashions to adorn my body 
and then return lamenting to my love. Shine out, fair sun, till I pour a glass, that I may see my shadow as I pass. This is where we get into what he's going to do with his brother Clarence. Now, his brother Clarence is uh, played by a rather well-known actor as well, as you said, what, Nigel Hawthorne. Good actor. Is he just in his bath, or does he go to the spa or something, and then there are these guards that show up? I'm kind of a, I'm a little confused as to what happens well, he's here. Prison. He's been imprisoned, and apparently there are these... See, only... See, only I would confuse prison with a spa. I don't know <laughs> what's going on with me tonight. It's a pretty dingy-looking, you know, spa, you know, that basement or wherever the pipes and the ceiling and then the tubs. It doesn't look all that nice. But, yeah, he's just in a tub reading the newspaper and with his glasses on and the murderers come in. In God's name. What are you? A man, as you are. But not as I am, royal. Nor you as we are loyal. Who has sent you to me? And why have you come? To... To... Listen to me. I. But how, my friends, have I offended you? Offended us you have not. But King Edward. I will send you to my brother Richard, who shall reward you better for my life than will the king for tidings of my death. You are deceived. Your brother Richard hates you. Oh, you are wrong. He loves me and he holds me dear. Go you to him. Tell him and he will weep. Aye. Millstones as he lessened us to weep. Oh, do not slander him, for he is kind. Right. As no in harvest. Richard! Yeah, I'm reminded in that case of uh, it, it felt a little like the Godfather to me. It was like, I, I guess really kind of Richard III is like a template for, you know, Michael Corleone, where it's like he's going around and taking care of the heads of the five families. It's like, let's get rid of everybody who's going to oppose him getting into, you know, the position that he wants to be in. He wants to be king. You know, he basically, that's his whole thrust is I want to be king and nothing should stop me. And I love just the way that he is ruthless when it comes to, you know, okay, I've got these, uh, obstacles are out of the way. Oh, here's another couple. You know, we got these kids that show up. It's like, Oh, got to get rid of them. And I just love the way that he's constantly moving these chess pieces around. And there are very few people that seem to realize that he's manipulating things or that they are being manipulated. And it's also part that, that leads into that, that, him as a gangster leads into the the film isn't just kind of trying to recreate this alternate history world of you know fascist you know Britain in the 30s. It's also a lot of nods to films of the 30s and and especially gangster films and you see that all throughout. Um, you know at the end there's you know a nod to a Cagney film and all that you could you could picture you're watching this and you could all it could also be not only a gangster film but it's a gangster film from the 30s. You know what I mean? Yeah, I totally know what you mean. There's a lot of uh, Scarface in there, and you're right. It's very white heat at the end and everything. So, yeah, I, I didn't really pick up on that when I watched it the first time, other than thinking, you know, that it reminded me that certain scenes reminded me of The Godfather, but I can really see that kind of older gangster influence now. So he sends his nephews off to uh, wherever. I guess we <laughs> believe they've been killed. And this is where Annette Benning sort of does her, um, 
I guess maybe this is her Yentl moment where she's running along the train. Where are my boys? Get my boys. She's a little upset at um, uh, Richard. He does, and, and he has to try to murder. And what I and another thing that that kind of erotic thing that that Ian McKellen does with, with the ring. He also has all these other touches in the movie. Every time he has someone murdered, he he goes through. There's some kind of look that he gets on his face when when his murderer, uh, Terrell, comes in and tells him that he's um, murdered the children, uh, Ian McKellen gets this kind of, he, he does this little shudder, and it's, but, it, but it's like this little orgasmic shudder that he gets as, as he's telling him this. And then later in the film, when, when Terrell kills another one, another person, when he kills Buckingham, Ian McKellen's sitting in the front seat of the car, listening you know, to him being killed, and, and he's, it's this... It, it, murder is this having people murdered for him is this sexual voyeuristic thrill that he has um, and and McKellen plays that up you know consistently through the entire film I mean I don't know about you but I always have to change my shorts every time I kill someone so I guess <laughs> I only do when I have someone else kill them for me, and then I get to fantasize about it. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> That's where I get it all messed up. I always end up doing everything myself. Well, if they haven't found the bodies, you're okay. Now, you got to have some good lackeys to do your, your bidding for you. You know, at least have a good mouthpiece like the uh, Duke of Buckingham, the Jim Broadbent character. But yeah, his, his Tyrell is... Uh, a good hired gun to have around or hired knife or hired whatever implement of destruction he happens to choose for that day. And that's a, that's a nice moment. Uh, the, the, uh, McKellen and Long Crane did, did a nice job of conflating that character because Terrell shows up later to kill um, uh, the princes, but it's another just anonymous murder. It's murderer one and murderer two in the play that kill Clarence. And this film does a nice job of, of making the murderer just one character who he has, you know, and Richard meets him early in the film uh, to kind of set up that you'll be my henchman who'll go around killing people for me. Uh, it's a nice way to condense the film and or to condense all those murders and to make it and to streamline it into one actor that we can focus on committing the crimes. Well, and the the introduction to his character is pretty great too. That whole thing where, you know, McKellen is asking about him, and then goes up and does this whole like, you know, have we met before? And he knows his name now because he's already asked about it. And he's there feeding the the pig, the boar, which is Richard's symbol. You know, feeding the boar the apples, and then when he hands uh, Richard the the apple, and he throws it at the boar, and you get the pig squeal sound like he hit the boar. It's like this. <laughs> This is a nice scene, you know. It's, it just it works very well. You get that shot uh, uh, with Stanley having a dream, and then in the dream, Richard looks up, looks up at him, and he has you know prosthetic boar face on. It's this almost little horror movie shot in, in in the middle of the film. Well, talking about henchmen, I really think that Buckingham in here is great, and especially in the ascension of Richard to when he finally takes over, and there's that whole sort of like lead up to, I guess I'll call it the triumph of the will looking scene, because there's McKellen's character goes up on this proscenium, he's going to give this speech. And it looks very like, you know, you have the, the, the symbols of the boar's head and the, you know, red banners and columns and everything. It looks very much like they borrowed the set from the triumph of the will and then redressed it. But um, there's this scene before that where they're like in the dressing room and he's getting him ready to go out there and meet the public. And he's telling him to, to be humble 
and it'd be pious. And he takes his book and he takes the dust jacket off and hands it to him like it's a Bible. And I just, just a little bit of business, but yeah. I just, I just really love that whole idea. And that little state, that little business in there, it's all, you know, they've come up with that. You know, of course, in the play, it's, it's, you know, pretend to be pious. And he holds an actual prayer book, and there's actually priests with him. And in this film, they, you know, it's, it's, it's a contemporary novel with just a dust jacket removed. And they're not priests he's in with. They're a couple makeup girls. So all those little touches that they add to this, really, they, 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 they also flesh out the world that it is. But it also um, uh, kind of doesn't make it funny, but it kind of adds a, a, that kind of ironic, you know, touch to the, the the evil that he's committing. Yeah, his whole oh, I could never be king. I really I couldn't take the honor and stuff. And Broadbent just oh no no you have to you have to. It's just that whole pantomime is just so well done to me. Well, if you insist. Yeah, and you know, and and it's great that that you know they the way they play that that character um, is he, he's Buckingham, um, and Buckingham helps. He's willing to help Richard get the throne and do whatever needs to be done. But then, as soon as Richard says, you know, kill my nephews, Buckingham backs out and he doesn't want to help him anymore. Um, and then, of course, Buckingham has to go, and it's you know this wonderful scene, you know, with that, of, of Buckingham realizing that, uh oh, now you know I have to keep going with it, committing these acts for this guy, and you know, uh, and he doesn't want to anymore. He's caught in a trap. Yeah, you can't shake the devil's hand and say you're only kidding. Yeah, we'll say later I've had enough. Right. So because of all of this fun and hijinks, of course, Richard taking over, there is now a new effort that. Folks rise up against him to uh, battle him for the throne. So, isn't this where we're at right about now, where the uh, armies are amassing against him? They are, and it's uh, uh, it's Richmond who's who's you know um, come to challenge for the throne now because he does have a claim to the throne before Richard's brother Edward would have had a claim to the throne. So, I mean, it's all at the end of the War of the Roses. I mean, the War of the Roses go on for you know several you know a few kingships. And, and the crown passes back and forth between, you know, different families. And um, Richmond is, is, you know, is kind of more related to the, to the, the Henry family that, that came before. But he's the, he's the one, the Tudors are the one that kind of unite the red and, and white rose and to say that we're, you know, we're all one house now, so we don't have to have, you know, any more of this divisive, you know, conflict. And also, Shakespeare's audience would, while... It's not like they're going to know history really, you know, exceptionally well, like, you know, as, as we would, as, as just like now. I mean, people don't, you know, the, the, the general public doesn't know that much about history. Most people just get history either a little bit in school and then through popular culture. But they kind of know the history of this a little bit, if only because of Shakespeare's other plays. Now, he hasn't written the Henry plays, the Henry the Fourth plays, with, and, and Henry the Five and Falstaff and all that yet, but he has written the Henry the Sixth play. And actually, for Shakespeare, in a sense, Richard the Third, for his audience, it's a sequel. It is the three Richard, the three Henry the Sixth plays have come out, and at the end of the, Hen- the last Henry the Sixth play, Richard helps his brother, and he's a full character in, 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 that, in the Henry the Sixth part three. Uh, helps his brother take the throne. And then a few years later, Shakespeare writes Richard III, kind of, and this is what happened when Richard took the throne then. So the audience um, has some expectations of this character going in. They just haven't seen him as evil as he becomes as king. So I'm a little confused here. Okay, so there's Henry the Sixth, part one, two, and three. So Richard the Third is actually Henry the Sixth, part four? Yes. 
It's it, that, and it's the last one of the whole cycle. And then Shakespeare goes and kind of writes prequels. This is a George Lucas moment, uh, and he decides that oh, I'm going to lead up to it. And 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 you get Richard the Second, the two Henry the Fourth, and Henry Five, and they all come before the Henry the Sixth plays. But Shakespeare's not like George Lucas in that all of Shakespeare's prequels were magnificent. They were even better than the original films. You, know? you want to know why? So, <laughs> you want to know why? What? No pod racing. Yeah, no Jar Jar Pigs. He got what the Misa saying. Now, I saw The War of the Roses, and I don't remember any of this stuff. I just remember Michael Douglas being served as dog by Kathleen Turner. Yeah. Where was all this other yeah, stuff? You know, Who does Danny DeVito play? Out, that's so confusing for me. When I saw that movie first, I went, War of the Roses? Oh, man, that's great, because I'm expecting this. <laughs> We're here all week. everyone stay folks we talked a little bit about i know this is just a a kind of an aside here we talked about how the budget was uh inflated but then how things kind of got tight later on and everything one of the areas where this movie i think suffers a little bit is the sound design i was having such a hard time with this movie because so many of the sound effects are used over and over and over again like whenever a door is open that might be squeaky it's the exact same squeak noise and it was just like there's one scene where it's just like door opens they say a little bit of dialogue door closes and it's the exact same sound and it just drove me crazy (laughs) i don't know if you guys picked up on that at all or it was just one of my like No, no, and you would think the guy that works in radio, me, would be able to pick up on the sound design a little better than I did. I didn't notice that at all. Oh, yeah, it was driving me crazy. I guess it's like, you know, you hear – there's one particular noise that I hear all the time that is this kind of electronic crackle. Obviously, I didn't hear it in this one, but it's like it's in The Matrix. It's in all this other stuff, and we had done a commercial um, way back when I worked at Comcast, and they had used that sound in the commercial, so while you're at editing the commercial you hear it over and over and over again and so now whenever i hear that sound it's like oh it's that one particular electronic squeal and you know it's like the whole thing where you hear like the same cat scream you know in different cartoons and tv shows it's like oh can't you guys record some new yeah record a new wilhelm would you I was listening for the Wilhelm scream in the battle scene, and I didn't hear it. So, but maybe it was there, and I just couldn't tell. But I thought, you know, it was, I, I had that moment where I, where all of a sudden, started thinking, "Oh, I'm going to hear that scream, aren't I?" So, <laughs> <laughs> would have been perfect for it. Would have been really good for the end of it. Spoilers. <laughs> that leads us up to the uh, the battle there, and of course, as I said, probably the other famous line in pop culture out of this play. Again, just a brilliant way to do it. It's funny. In my memory, it was different. In my memory, he was in a tank and and kind of popped out of it and said that. And that was a that's a strong visual memory I have. And I just rewatched it. He wasn't in a tank. He was in a jeep with like a machine gun attached to it. And I thought, isn't that weird? How you, how my memory can create something else? But it's in effect the same idea. It's that I'm in some modern contrivance that would you know I, I would actually be better off on a horse. 
because that's usually a line you just have to cut if you're going to update the film. Um, but this, it, 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 it's so cleverly done, and clever usually isn't a good thing for a film, especially in a battle scene towards the end. But this, it, it, it adds to his whole, you know, character that, that this is the guy that would, in the middle of a battle, would say like, "Oh, I wish I had a horse instead of this jeep that just got stuck." So I, in a funny way, a horse, a horse. So I, and, it, and 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 the whole thing, a horse, my kingdom for a horse, of course, because his kingdom is at risk because his jeep is stuck in the mud, and so the whole the whole line works so well. I totally thought that the line takes on a different meaning than it does in the original play or different versions, because of course it's you know get me a horse so I can get out of here. Here it's not only get me a horse so I can get out of here, but modern technology is failing me. Yeah, which is great for a play that is just really kind of steeped in that. And I mean, don't we see him on a motorcycle at one point? I don't think we see him on a motorcycle, but we see other people, you know, and all that kind of modern, you know, using that. I mean, it's just that, it, you know, it's, movie, it's a movie that establishes itself in the modern world. Um, and, uh, uh, and, that, and that provides the irony for the line right there. And the final showdown and goodbye at the end of the film. I love the ending of this movie. I was watching it with someone who came in about halfway through, and she was like, that's an odd ending. He's, like, smiling. Like, why is he smiling? And I'm just like, because he's, he doesn't care. He's just so much about being evil. He doesn't even care that he's dying. Yeah, you're falling back into the flames, big smile on his face, and uh, and it's this happy, joyful song as he's falling into the flames with a big smile on his face. It's you know, and and that that does hint at the as you said earlier, Mike, uh, at white heat. You know the you know at, at the end of white heat when when the thing blows up and I'm on top of the world. Um, uh, that's the line. That's the song. The song is "Sitting on Top of the World" by Al Jolson that is playing. So it provides a further link to that Cagney film. But the only the only problem at the end of this film for me is that uh, it's a showdown. It's kind of anticlimactic, you know. And in, 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 if you said it in medieval times, you can have a really good sword fight right then. You know, there's a really good fight going on. But here, when people are chasing each other with you know guns, it's just a matter of shooting the guy. So. Um, uh, but the interesting choice in this is that actually, and I, and I, and I had, a, and, I, and I went back and rewatched it. Uh, Richmond doesn't even shoot and kill him. Um, uh, Richard just kind of starts to fall back on his own. He puts out his hand, and he says, "You know, we'll meet, you know, in heaven or hell." And then he just leans back into the flames, and then Richmond fires his gun. So Richmond doesn't even get to kill him. He kind of, you know, just falls into the flames of his own accord at the end. And then Richmond, what do you guys think of that? At the end, Richmond, played by Dominic West, looks at the camera and gives a little smile. Yeah, which I was just like, nice. Yeah, because that's almost the same smile and the same move that we've seen Richard do throughout the film. Doesn't that say that? That that's kind of like, yeah, this is what we're like, you know, people who, you know, fight and win kingships, you know? Like, maybe he's not as pure and lily white as we kind of think that he is in the way he's portrayed early on. Well, as uh, their fellow countrymen sang uh, a few decades ago, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, But as for all of that in the Gasworks there, stay, stay close and listen to this interview with Richard Longcrane. It was very exciting on the set during the shooting of that whole thing. And I do put the word shooting 
in uh, heavy emphasis, as you'll soon find out with this interview. Well, you know, it's it just a little thing, a, a little change that happens in this film that I think is in, that makes it, that winds up being important for the film. That that is something they had to change from the play is that in the play there are these um, uh, lines from uh, Queen Margaret in the play, and they cut Queen Margaret for the movie. She's actually she was the wife of Henry the um, and and she's but she's still around and she has these lines really and that she says to Richard really damning him and you're awful and you've always been awful kind of lines and in this film they give it to the Duchess they give it to Piper Maggie Smith they give it to Richard's mother and in doing that it really creates another dimension to Richard's character and saying that yeah you're an evil guy but you're kind of an evil guy who's brought up by a mother who would say something like this to you so perhaps you're kind of you know evil because of your family you know that you're not necessarily this kind of malformed anomaly that has come out at birth but your mother has some hatred for you um, and, it's, and it's a great little touch for the character that they have to do by juggling lines, giving lines to someone else who didn't speak them. But it works so well for this, and I really like that little touch in the film. So you think that it becomes sort of a um, a family abuse situation as opposed to maybe a mother who knows that she had a bad egg on her hands? I think it can lead to that. It can lead you to thinking about you know Ian McCall- the Richard III as being raised by this kind of woman that 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 would you know that that could be a contributing factor to him turning out so badly. I think there's definitely that hint there. At least I take it as that hint. You know, especially take it as that hint because they ha- they they have to. Uh, uh, Juan Crane and, and, and McKellen have to um, uh, make a conscious choice to use those lines because they're taking them from another character and giving them to her to say to him. Yeah, one little moment. When, when Rivers is killed, Robert Downey Jr. is killed, um, he's, uh, uh, first of all, it's a shock because that's not what happens in the play. He's killed in the play, but not like that, and not even at that moment. It happens later. Um, and he's in this room having this having sex with this uh, I guess uh, uh, um, maid or something I don't know who she is she seems to have some kind of uniform hat on and um, uh, he's having sex with her in there and then the what is it like a spear or something comes up from under the bed and comes out his chest and that was in Friday the Thirteenth Part uh, Three wasn't I mean one of the Friday the Thirteenth movies killed someone in that same exact way and. Um, it was just a little reference in the film that that and that Richard is, the, is having the boar face in the one dream or these almost kind of little touches from horror movies that I saw in this that, you know, I don't know if Lundgren, you know, you consciously put them in, but, but it kind of places the film in that uh, era, at least. It's 95. It's still close to that, you know, kind of, you know, it's still in that kind of horror boom in the 80s and 90s. Um, that you know, it's it's just another context for the movie that you can see it as having touches of horror in it as well. I thought that was interesting. Okay, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Richard Longcrane, the director of Richard the Third. I'm sitting on top of the world. I'm rolling along. Yes, rolling along. Nice to meet you. Uh, I wasn't on with uh, when we did Haunting of Julio, so it was uh, it was great to hear that you were willing to come back and talk about one of, of my one of my favorite adaptations of Shakespeare, Richard III. Well, thank you, thank you. It was um, I, funny enough. Bizarrely, I had lunch with Ian McKellen today, which I haven't been trying to see him since he got to New York to do Godot. He's doing Godot um, in on Broadway, and uh, 
we managed to meet for lunch today. So I was, I told him we were doing a podcast. He was, um, we have both have very fond memories of Richard III. It was, um, it was good fun. Wanted to ask about that. I know it is an adaptation of what he did on the stage. How did it develop? And then how did you become involved? Well, the first memory I have of it was I have a home in France and I was driving back on the motorway with my wife. It's a very long drive. We do a lot of reading and listening to stuff. And, uh, I, I'd been sent this script of Richard III. I'm not a big fan of theatre, to be honest. I, 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 um, I, I don't uh, I prefer movies. And uh, so I don't go to the theatre much. And, and McKellen was somebody I had. I knew he was, but I had no real knowledge of his. You know, I knew he was the Shakespearean actor. And uh, I'd been sent the script of Richard III by my agent. And I started reading it. And I thought, well, it's, it was pretty old-fashioned, truthfully, the, the script that Ian had done. Um, it was based on the stage production largely. Um, but I got to the bit where a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse, which of course even I knew, and I'm an ignoramus when it comes to Shakespeare. Um, and it was, it, you know, it had a jeep with its wheels spinning. And I thought, well, actually, that's rather a nice, you know, twist of imagery. And, and, you know, in fact, a horse would have got them out of there and a jeep wouldn't. So I, when I got home, uh, I met Ian and we got on extremely well in, initially. You know, he was very, I thought he'd be rather pompous and arrogant and he's absolutely, he can be pompous and, and you have to take the piss out of him and he's a lovely man and not at all pompous. He's one of the most down to earth people I've ever met. And, um, we got on just like a house on fire and, um, so then we decided to try and set it. I can't remember how, I don't think they got the money. Maybe they had some. I think the original money was coming from, MGM were, thought it was going to be a documentary for schools, and they'd given us small hundreds of thousands, nothing. And Rob, Robbie Little and his wife, um, who are film distributors, they put money in, um, and it sort of grew from there, really. When it came to developing the script with Ian, I know that the original Richard III is like three hours long. Oh, how did you decide what to keep and what to throw away, or did he already has he already made those decisions? He'd made a lot of the decisions. Funny enough, we were t- he said today he thought it should be twenty minutes longer, which was interesting. We'd never discussed that before when we were talking about it on the on his the roof of his penthouse in Tribeca. He was saying um, he was saying how he thought it should be a bit longer. But we the, the script he, basically to cut to the chase. Ian took care of the text, and I took care of the imagery. Um, so I, because his knowledge of Shakespeare is remarkable, um, and he knew the play backwards. Having said that, I said, look, if I'm going to do Shakespeare, I had a very expensive private education, not a very good one. I went to the cheap Wellington, which is Wellington, Somerset, as opposed to Wellington, Shropshire, but it wasn't, you know, my parents sweated blood to send me to this public school. And I had a, a pretty crappy education, to be honest. And certainly English and Shakespeare were, I thought was not for me. So I came out of it knowing nothing, thinking he was, you know, of course, I was a stupid one. Shakespeare was a genius. And um, so what I did say to him was, if we're going to do this, I, I'd like to make a play that would work for me, that I would understand. I don't. And he said, well, that's great. Let's do that. Because he, he always wanted Shakespeare to appeal, for, to appeal to 14-year-olds and above, that they would understand it. So I said, OK. So we, we went through the text. And I would say, so what does this mean? And what I don't understand this scene. What exactly is the woman or the man saying? And he would, 90% of the time, he'd say, well, it, he'd translate it as it were into into common vernacular but a few times he said you know i don't actually know myself let's try and look this up or we do some research so it was his his skill and he's a very very good writer Ian. you know really good he he should i keep encouraging him to write movie scripts because he's he's written a few things and he really is an excellent writer um but he imagery is not what he does, I guess. So I, and I never saw the stage production. I didn't want to. Um, well, that's actually a bit of a lie. I did eventually see it. 
about three weeks before we started shooting. I don't remember why I had to. It, was a, it wasn't the stage production. It was a video, a locked-off video of the stage production. And I thought it was so awful that I went and I thought Ian was, I didn't like his performance at all. It, talk about theatrical. You know, it was, it was just so over the top. I mean, I guess if you like Shakespeare and you like big performances, I, I pulled out of the picture and said, Ian, I don't want to do the film. If that's the, if that's the character you want to play, then I don't think you've got the right director. And rather than saying, well, fuck off, Richard, you know, you don't know anything about anything. He said, all right, then tell me what you want me to do, which I thought was pretty amazing for, you know, the greatest Shakespearean actor to ever live kind of thing or were living. Uh, he was absolutely modest and wonderful, and, you know, I owe him a lot because um, it's probably one of the films I'm, I've ever made that I, I'm most attached to. So we, we then worked together for several months writing. In fact, he said today, I'm the man who introduced him to the Internet because he couldn't use computers at all, and I was, I've always been a, a bit of a techno freak and, and loved Macs. I'm not a big lover of PCs, but I got into Macs when they first came out, and so... I taught him how to use it, and we worked him in his, his his house down on the river and me in Notting Hill, and we would write on scripts and send them across, and then I'd work on what he'd done, and he'd work on what I'd done. So it was a great collaboration. It's probably the best writing collaboration I think I've ever been on. It's my understanding the stage version had this alternative fascist 1930s England, but could, did you ever talk to them or to Ian about where that idea came from? Uh, I must have done, but I don't recall. Um, did it come from the director? whose name escapes me now, and it shouldn't do. It's very rude of me. He's a very nice man, a very well-known stage director who did the stage production. Um, Richard Eyre. I, it must have come from Richard Eyre, I guess. Yes, I think it did. It, I, I don't think there was another writer involved, but uh, there might have been. I guess one could look it up, but I don't. As I said, I kind of wanted to be removed from it completely because um, I, I didn't want to be influenced by it because um, I, I had my own ideas on it. And... Uh, Apart from seeing, I think I only saw about 20 minutes of, of Ian on stage and I just thought, well, it was so theatrical. Um, but you know, he, he just did it. I mean, you obviously you guys have seen the movie, but I mean, his performance, his ability to be controlled and yet also theatrical, but in a cinematic way was remarkable. I, I, there are, you know, actors come in every conceivable breed and version and variant you can imagine. But the great ones, you just nudge, you know, you don't direct them really. There's a lot of bullshit talked about directing actors. If they're really good, you know, they do it and you just nudge them just gently like you would a ship at, you know, at sea. You don't, otherwise you oversteer. And he was the most nudgeable actor I've ever worked with, I think. It was a delight to, because if he didn't want to do it, he'd say, he'd tell you why he didn't want to. And if he liked the idea, he'd say, that's great, I can do that. The, the communication was um, was wonderful, and, and uh, I'll never forget that, really. You know, having it set in this alternate 1930s, what did that do for you as a director as opposed to having it set in the period, which would have been, what, 14, 1500s? Yeah. Um, well, it excited me. I've always loved, uh, you know, I, my life has been art school. I started life as a sculptor at, at, when I was very young, and then I went to the Royal College of Art to do film. Um, but I was always involved in design. I had a toy company for 20 years that designed. I made that stupid Newton's Cradle thing in the 60s. And so I've always been interested in, in design and, and production and product. And so for me, the architecture of London, I felt had never really been used. And I had this idea that we could take things that weren't buildings and make them into buildings and make them into structures. So the, the prison 
was in fact the base of a, an old gasometer in Ealing or Richmond, I think. So, you know, it was bombed in the war and the, the, the metal was all gone, but there's a great hole in the ground which was full of water and, and that became um, our prison for um, dear old Nigel Hawthorne. Uh, so it was a great opportunity to, and you know, and using Battersea Power Station. There was, uh, I had very inexperienced producers who were lovely. Um, they, they, and they've, um, they were great to work with because they let me pretty much have my head um, in terms of design. Uh, but the thing that was difficult, we didn't have any money, so I, though I could, we could do. Uh, I, I don't know if I've ever told you a story about about how we went bankrupt. Have we, do you know about this? No, I sure don't. Uh, well, it was about we had five million pounds, I think, to make the movie. And a lovely lady called Mary Richard, who was the production manager or line producer, who now she's one of my close friends and she did things like Band of Brothers. She's one of the top um, producers, line producers in the, in the country. She, she'd done a budget at five million pounds, which, yes, you can certainly make a production of Richard III for five million pounds, but unfortunately not the production I had in my head. So I was making one movie. It was probably nearer to about 15 million. And they, everyone else, we thought we were making five. I had no idea what, what I wanted to do would cost, but it was certainly more than five million. And this often happens in films. So anyway, about we, we were all in pre-production, we're rushing around, and we'd already closed down once because we'd cast them. Who was cast to play Annette Benning? Um, Angelica Houston. And I remember the first day of the prep, I was in my office in Pine, uh, Shepparton Studios and Ian came in and I, I came in, Ian was already there and I came with a big bunch of flowers for one for the, for the Mary Richards and one for Ian McKellen because he likes his flowers. And I put them on the lady's desk and she said, I'm afraid the pictures collapsed because Angelica Houston's pulled out. So the first day we, we closed down. Um, I'll finish this story and I'll get back to the other one. We then, so Ian and I, it's the first day of the first week of production, pre-production, um, and we're driving back in the car at the end of the day. Um, I'd have to say close to tears, if not in tears. Um, and I'd always wanted to use Annette Benning, and, uh, but she wasn't available. So I thought, well, I wonder if she's available now, Ian. And I literally, it was the very early days of cell phones. Um, and I had one, I was a bit of an early adopter. So I rang, I had one number. I knew, um, I knew Warren from uh, other stuff from, he's a friend of Julie Christie's and Julie's a friend of mine. And um, so I had a number for Warren in, in Los Angeles and I rang it and it, I thought, see if we can get hold of Annette. And it rang and it rang and it rang. And then I was about to hang up when suddenly a, a voice came on the other end of the line and it was, it was Warren Beatty's assistant uh, who was from England and a big fan of Ian McKellen's. And he had been parking his car in the car park of, of the house that Warren and Annette lived in and was walking past the bungalow at the bottom of the drive, which had been empty for three years and was used for storing boxes and old letters. And no one had got around to cutting off the phone that was in it. And he heard the phone ringing managed to get the door open, find the phone buried under all sorts of old furniture and boxes, picked it up, and it was me on the other end of it. So I explained the problem, what I wanted to do, and he said, sure, I'd love to. I'm, you know, he said, it's wonderful that Ian McKellen, I'd, I'd love to. So he took the script. We sent him a script that afternoon, and he, um, uh, Annette read it the, on, on the Sunday, and Monday morning she said, um, I'll come and do it. And that was, and we'd only, we'd closed down on the Friday, the Thursday or the Friday, and we started again on the Monday. So um, <laughs> it was an auspicious start. 
inauspicious start. Where we'll start. And then we'll, so I'll just get back. What was I talking about? We were talking about the money. Oh, yes, that's right. We went, so we started making this film. Now we had it all going. We had the five million. And we're, we're, three weeks before we start shooting, um, the producers come to me and say, we've got a bit of a problem. Uh, we, we haven't, this is never going to work, this budget. It's, we've got it all wrong. And we've only got money to shoot for, for three weeks. And I think it was a six-week shoot. And I said, well, we'll have to cancel the movie uh, because we can't do that. I said, it, they said, but we've, we've put our houses, both of them had, had put their houses up to the banks to, as collateral. And if the film had collapsed, they would have lost their houses. So I said, oh, shit, this is important. They said, but don't worry. Um, John Kelly, who is head of MGM, was head of MGM at the time, the famous producer who went on and then ran um, Sony for years. He's dead now. Um, John loves the project, loves it. And he's going to, he'll give us another two or three million if he likes what we do. So naively, I thought, oh, that's all right. Then we better have, well, we'll have a go. We'll have to. So we start the movie with the most amazing team of people we managed to put together. And I was called in every favor I could from my, I was reasonably successful at doing commercials at the time. So I spent a lot of money with all the, the prop houses and the camera houses. So I called in every favor I could to, um, to get, uh, get stuff cheap. Anyway, so we shoot for three weeks and the stuff is pretty good, I guess, pretty, pretty interesting and amazing. And we get, from every day we get telexes and stuff. I think, I can't think if emails were around. I guess they were. But anyway, we get communication from John Kelly to say, we love this material. It's fantastic. Keep up the good work. So I think, well, we'll all be fine. So John comes over. We're shooting on H stage, I remember. And I had a, I had an old um, Airstream motorhome at the time of mine, of my own, that I had parked inside the actual H stage, which is an enormous stage at Pinewood. Uh, no, Shepparton, I'm sorry. Um, and Callie arrives and we're doing some great big scene and... He comes into my trailer and he said, well, Richard, wonderful, wonderful stuff. And I said, great, John. So can we have the three million then? And he goes, he smiles and goes very quiet. He says, I'll be back in a minute. He goes outside, goes absolutely apeshit, starts screaming at the producers. He, he had no intention of giving us any more money. In fact, MGM was going bust at the time and he was having a trouble keeping it going. So about a week later, the completion bond came in. I guess you guys know what that means, but I'll explain it for the audience who don't know. Uh, the completion bond are the insurance company. You have to bond the film so that if it goes, if it does get into trouble, they guarantee to finish the movie. Now, usually it's a death knell for any film because they'll come in and they'll just gut it and they'll technically deliver the movie as it says. They'll shoot the script, but there'll be one take of each scene so they can say they've shot it. But the films rarely see the light of day. So we were pretty worried. Um, I went to, I went to Ian and I went to the two producers and funnily enough, my assistant who is a, a lovely lady called Maria Podiakos, who father was, is in, was he's dead now, in shipping. So she, and she, all of us put in, I put in my fee of £50,000 uh, and Ian put his in and the two producers put their money in, and Maria said, I'll give you £50,000, which not bad for it. She was doing continuity on it. So that's not bad. Your continuity girl gives you 50 grand. So we had a quarter of a million pounds and I went then to the completion bond and said, look, you've got two choices. You either let us get on with this film our own way and I'll give you a quarter of a million pounds. Uh, but you don't come in and take over the film and I'll guarantee to bring it in on time and budget. And I managed to persuade them. Uh, they did like the material. They have to say they were pretty supportive anyway, but it would have been the nightmare. And what's interesting, I think, about it is we started off thinking we had another three, another three or four million pounds coming. 
And so the standard that everybody set, the production department, the art, you know, the art department, the costumes, everybody was at a certain level. And when the film collapsed and they said, we told everyone, look, you've got half the budget or whatever that you had before. Somehow they managed to keep the quality of the work up. And, you know, I think if they'd known how much money we really had at the beginning, the film would never have been as good as it was. Wow. It's quite amazing. I've never heard of anyone wrestling with the uh, the bonding company like that. No, I was lucky. I, I'm told I could sell Coles to Newcastle, but I, I guess I, maybe I did my best. I had a lot at stake there, and I was by that. You know, directors do. You know, that time three or four weeks in, I was. I knew we had something fairly special on our hands, and uh, I think I would have sold my my firstborn to keep the movie going. Getting back to the design, you know. One of the things I really love about the film is that it, it recalls the Third Reich and Mussolini's Italy, but it doesn't rip it off. There are new ideas in the design, and I wanted to ask you about the design and also the boar's head emblem. Boar's head I, was actually – I think it was it was historically Richard uh, Richard III's actual emblem. It was his – you know, it, 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 the boar's head was his, um, his emblem. So there was nothing very creative about that. We just took it and used it and made the – the pig mask, etc. So that was, you know, that was uh, how that came about. Um, Design-wise, um, what can I tell you about design? Hang on, I'll... I'll uh, well, it was Peter Bijou lit it. It was amazing. Oh, it's Tony Burrow. Oh, Tony Burrows. Good gracious. No, we fell out very badly, and I've um, never spoken to him since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's very talented. He, I, I think his career uh, took a bit of a complex man, let's put it that way. But um, not a very talented man, and um, he got the idea. He came – I think he'd come – not sure how much he'd done before that. I think he'd come out of television. I don't know where – I'd met him. I think I'd done a, a, a film with Jim Broadbent, Wide-Eyed and Legless. I think that's maybe where, maybe where we met. Ladder 49 and Knight's Tale. The last film I can see did was 2007. Anyway, a very talented man, but um, we, we didn't – we fell out in the end. But design-wise uh, – you know, once we got the idea of using strange things and not being tied, we couldn't afford to build sets most of the time. We built a set for the tank coming <clears throat> through the wall for obvious reasons. But we um, we just used what we could find. And in those days, locations weren't the prices that they are today. We couldn't have shot in most of them today. They'd have been too expensive because um, people, you know, companies know the value of their locations. Um, but we, we just, uh, we had a very good location manager who got permission for, for all, sort, all sorts of amazing places. Carnforth, I think, was our first day shooting. I mean, if you remember, there's a scene where Annette Benning and her daughter um, go to uh, see Richard, who's in uh, going off to battle, and in his, in fact, it was Hitler's train we used as his train, and we were at Carnforth, which is this amazing um, uh, steam museum in in, in the Midlands. Uh, I think it's the Midlands, maybe a bit further up. It was a pretty daunting first day. We had, I don't know. 600 extras all in uniform. <clears throat> we had five live steam engines. We had six tanks, uh, armored vehicles, 50 horses. It was a pretty intimidating day for a first day. I, I have a theory. Often directors start off, you know, with something easy like walk-bys and, you know, drive-bys or something to get themselves into it. <clears throat> I think that it's better for everyone to just go for something really big and break the ice and just, you know, do it because then people know, well, okay, we can do that. We can do anything. So um, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but it's the way I <clears throat> like to work. 
the tension goes. The actors feel that they've actually done some acting because they're like racehorses actors. They're all ready to, you know, run out of the trap. They want to run all the time. They want to get going that you, you can't hold them back too long. They lose them. That's why, you know, you have to keep the pace going on the floor because if actors sit in their trailer for too long, they do get very bored and sometimes the performance can, can suffer. But funnily enough, I remembered a, another story about that. My favorite movie, uh, well, two favorite movies probably. One of them is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And the other one is probably Brief Encounter. And uh, while we were setting up, I was there at dawn and, and stuff. But the, while I was waiting for things to happen, I was obviously pretty nervous. And I thought I'll wander off and just, you know, get a bit of air. And there was no, no one needed me. I took a radio with me, two-way radio. And um, obviously, Carnforth is an old uh, railway yard, sh- uh, shunting yard. But the the main line still runs through it. And I wandered off and I went through a doorway and I found myself on a beautiful old station, beautiful station. And then a big express train roared through, but there was no one on the station because it was closed down. And I sat on this bench and I thought about, you know, how am I going to get through this movie? And then I looked up and a, a man said, excuse me, sir, you can't come in here. She's private. I said, I'm sorry. He said, that's all right. I said, I'm with the film crew. He said, I said, this is beautiful. He said, oh, you're filming. He said, well, you're, you're in the right place for filming. He said, this is where they made Brief Encounter. And it was the exact station. I was sitting on the bench that they sit on in Brief Encounter. So I took that as an enormously good omen. And I went back to work feeling, well, something the gods of film are going to look after us today. And they did. Oh, that is great. One of the things that I really like about the film is the mix of humor with the seriousness, especially the the opening with the now is the winner of our discontent and the way that mm-hmm. it cuts from him on stage to going to the urinal. Um, where did some of the humor for this come from? Was that all in the original stage play or did you work that into there? It was either me or, Lee, uh, or Ian. Um, I think probably a mixture of both. I tend to go quite not big humor because I don't like slapstick, but I'm, I often try things that are pretty outrageous and sometimes I pull them off and sometimes I don't. I think Ian was a very good barometer. He's not frightened of anything. And he said, no, no, I can make that work. And if an actor thinks they can make something work, that usually can. I found over the years, you can't bully actors into doing things. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't work. So the urinals, I suspect was me. I've always, all the films I've made, I think I've got scenes in urinals. I just think they're visually so wonderful. Those great white, you know, slabs of marble or some of them have marble, the old clubs. I've used them in quite a few films uh, because I think there's something, I, I, I like, I like actors doing the wrong thing at the right time. I, th- I like to put them in difficult positions. I, when I, I do a bit of teaching, not very much, but I use this as an example. It might help to explain how I did some things in the film. If you take, say, a classic love scene of a, of a man proposing to a woman on a, on a beach at sunset with, with seagulls and, and the sunset thing, you know, you just, it's a very standard scene and rather boring and stuff. You can take exactly the same proposal of marriage that you would get in any shitty <clears throat> sitcom or, or, you know, soap. You take that scene, you set it on a freeway in, the, uh, in a rainstorm with trucks going by and the, the, you've got a flat tire on your car and you're trying to change the flat tire at the same time as proposing to your, your loved one. <clears throat> that scene will take on a completely different quality and emotion and it will be much realer and much more moving and romantic in a funny kind of way. So I think restaging stuff, how you stage it, where you stage it, can have an enormous um, change of change of change of the of the scene it can improve a, a mundane scene it can make it suddenly come to life 
My grandmother often talked to me about sort of the, the traumas of living through the war and the impact that that had on the British public. She was from Scotland, but still, you know, mm-hmm. dealed sure. with uh, living through the Blitz and whatnot and was going to ask, you know, what was your experience dealing with that and how do you think that filters into the staging and the creation of Richard III? Well, I didn't live through the war. I was born the year after the war. Um, that, you mean that's the, the Second World War, obviously. Right, yeah, we yeah. don't think you're that old. No. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, I'm sure growing up in, in post-war oh, England. War England, yeah, must have been well, an... Not much, really. You know, I, would say, I was born in 46, war ended in 45. I remember sweet rationing, but that's about it. So to say we had uh, there was any hardship, um, I don't think I could. I could truthfully say that my um, my childhood was um, was particularly fraught with. I was a rather had a rather boring middle class um, upbringing. <laughs> but um, I think it, um, Ian of Ian seventy four, so he certainly um, you know did did live through it and did remember it um, to a degree. I mean, I remember London was a very different place to the way it is now. It was full of bomb sites. Um, there weren't any, you know, there were no, obviously no tanks because we didn't have them. There was no battling, no fighting in England. But all the, all the, um, I remember going to Boulogne, which is immediately across the channel with my parents when I was very young and, and playing on a, on a, a V, a V2 launch platform, you know, the actual V2, they were called buzz bombs that, 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 um, that Hitler produced to attack London. I remember playing on those on the French coast. And the, 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 along the seaside in England, there were, there, were, there were bombs constantly found. I can remember a butterfly bomb, they were called, exploding when we were staying at Dover, where my mum lived in a house, and they cleared the street, and the bomb went, a butterfly bomb exploded um, that was left, that's found in the beach, the tide had washed up. So I guess, and um, I remember the bomb sites all over London, which are all gone now virtually, and they were, bizarrely, they were full of the most beautiful um plants weeds what were they called the, the the purple i can't remember the name of them now um uh, so they you had white and purple plants that grew in these bomb sites it was uh and it, of course london was completely black at the time it, they it's all been clean now so it in the in my childhood big cities because of smoke you know coal-fired heating uh, the pollution was terrible, and the smogs I can remember uh, when the, the the combination of of fog and uh, coal smoke um, couldn't get through the 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 fog layer, so it held down, and people had to wear masks, and many mm. people died from it. So, yeah, it did some. Like I said, it was you know I've been a very lucky man. I've I've not I've not lived through a war. A generation before me lived through probably two. So um, I've been pretty lucky. I wanted to take a moment to ask you a little bit about the cast. I mean, not only, you know, you've talked about Ian McKellen and Annette Benning, but sure. Robert Downey Jr., Jim Broadbent, Nigel Hawthorne, Christian yeah. Scott Thomas. How did that casting kind of come together? And did having that caliber of acting make it easier for you as a director? Yeah, easier and easy and difficult. Uh, it started with, we had Ian and Annette. Jim Broadbent was a friend. Ian knew Robert. Uh, and Nigel Hawthorne. I knew, did I know Kristen? I think I might have done. I'm not sure. She'd never, she was the only one who'd never done any Shakespeare, her and I. John would, Maggie, I, I'd, I'd done a film with Maggie. I did my first, second film with Maggie called The Missionary with Michael Palin. So I knew Mags. And I think, did I know Jim Carter? I think I met Jim Carter from, from doing the same film with, um, uh, Jim Broadbent, Edward Hardwick, Adrian Dunbar, I met on that. 
Dominic West, of course, it was his first, I gave him his first job. He was straight out of Eton. He'd never acted before. Stacy, Bill Patterson, I'd done a film with uh, called The Vanishing Army. Yeah, they fell into, I mean, largely, I, I think once we had, once we had Ian and Annette it, and Robert, I think it fell into place really. Everyone wanted to be in it within reason. Because none of them got paid anything. They all got, you know, a scale, I think. But we're very lucky. It made it difficult in that <clears throat> Shakespeare, I mean, there's one scene I remember that had everybody in it. But Maggie was just an extra. Maggie Smith does not like being an extra. <laughs> she had no dialogue at all. So, you know, darling, what would you like me to do? I, I can sort of move around here or shall I just, you know, turn with my back to the camera? What? So trying to look after about, you know, Annette and Jim and Robert and everybody. Robert was not in his um, best of health, I think would be the, the right way to describe it at the time. Because we know he had a, obviously had, had problems with, with um was was substances at the time, and uh, he was pretty um, pretty out of it a lot. Uh, but but a lovely man and a bloody good actor. But he took a little bit of of handling at times. Kristen was just nervous, but I thought did a wonderful a wonderful uh, job in uh, in that the Lady Anne scene in the mortuary. In fact, there's a very funny there's a very funny moment in that in that scene which you won't have seen, I don't think, but you won't notice. It's a, a good case of sleight of hand or misdirection, as my dad, who was a travelling was a magician. Well, he would travel with magicians. He was actually a musical comic, but he traveled with magicians a lot. And misdirection is how you, you know, what you do as a magician. You, you make people look at your right hand while your left hand is taking the cards out of your pocket. And if you actually watch the Lady Anne scene, there's, <laughs> there's one moment where, where Kristen has got a itch on her nose. And if you, you're, but Ian is doing seriously heavy thesping on the left of screen. But if you don't, and he's saying all the dialogue, if you watch Kristen, she's trying with her, to, to, to scratch her nose with her upper lip at the same. So it's, it looks ridiculous, but even I didn't notice it until we'd already put the film together. Uh, and if you watch it, you'll find it very funny because it, 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 it's completely not what she should be doing. You, you talked about how the the production from the money end was a was a difficulty, a big challenge. And I wanted yeah, to ask about the big scene at the end. Obviously, you got tanks, you've got all this stuff yeah, going on. Everything. And what was the challenge in putting that whole thing together? How long did it take? Well, I think we had about three or four days there, not long. Um, I was, by that time we were running out of the money that we'd run out of the money that it was, you know, it was all gone. So I remember laying detonators myself while I was trying to, cause I'm, I'm quite good with electric. So I was actually talking to the actors while I was actually laying explosives myself to help the effects men because we didn't have enough staff. We got stopped several times because we had tankers full of, um, methane gas coming along to produce those flames. Cause it's such an enormous building. You can have sort of 50 foot high flames and at the size we at they didn't look big enough so the effects men were amazing um to do it and we had the fire brigade kept turning up because if someone reports a fire they have to come out so these poor firemen would, were almost living with us they'd have to come across the bells would be ringing and they'd we'd stop filming they'd arrive they'd say no it's fine we just had to turn up but i got shot at i remember that was quite interesting um i got um someone fired a rifle at me and and uh, didn't hit me but hit the ground right by my foot there was um the the chimneys the whole roof had gone off the building but it was completely gutted but the chimneys are vast and they're about 200 150 feet up i guess 100 feet at least up maybe 150 um and i was doing something talking to the actor i think it was on the day of the prep and i i just heard this kind of puff down at the in my feet and the dust went up and i looked up and there was a guy with a rifle 
um, in, uh, in the top, live up in the chimney at the top of the, the base of the chimney. So we all scattered and we called the police and they came along and they got a special group who, with dogs and went up to the top of the town. They found this old guy living there and he objected to us coming into his uh, abandoned building and decided to shoot the director. But he didn't hit me, luckily, so I was, I was okay. Oh, my God. <laughs> that story is crazy. <laughs> Insane. The things that happened. Wow. <laughs> you mentioned, Ian, thinking that it should be maybe 20 minutes longer. Were there any cut scenes? And, and do you remember maybe what ended up on the cutting room floor? I don't think anything. I think we used everything we shot. I don't think a single thing. I, I don't really remember, but I rem- I'm pretty sure that we didn't lose anything. We lost a lot of characters from the original play, as we talked about earlier. We left, because I mean, in the play, and even... Um, um, who was the, the, the most famous? Um, can't think. I knew him, of course, as well. Um, a horse, the, the famous, the, the famous 1950s actor. Early in Sir Lawrence, yes, Larry. Um, he cut the same character out. We, the people tend to cut the Queen Mother out. She's a whole strand that is really complicated. Um, so we took her out completely. Um, we didn't change the text. It's something that might be interesting for people to know. We obviously felt, Ian and I, there's no point in doing Shakespeare if you rewrite him. But so all we did, the only thing we did that one could be criticised for maybe is we, to help a, a modern audience understand the, who people were, we called them by their names. So, for example, Jim Broadbent was the Prime Minister, and that's what he really was. So when someone introduces, they go, Prime Minister. They don't call him his name. So that we, 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 to, we hopefully helped to set the audience where they were. We also, in I think in the, yes, interesting enough, the Lady Anne scene, Kristen Scott Thomas, when she's um, crying over the body in the, in the morgue, in Shakespeare's play, it's her second cousin twice removed. No relationship to him at all. It's a complete non-scene. And um, usually when it's done, we changed it to her, to her husband, to her lover. Because it, it didn't really... So we did change... We never changed the words, but we changed a bit of who people were. Um, and we... I, For example, the tank coming through the wall was obviously out of my head. Um, but I wanted... So all that opening sequence... Because bearing in mind, you know, the audience of the time would have... You know, the history plays were very, very popular. So people knew more about history at the time of Shakespeare's writing than they do today, probably, generally, the... the the um, man in the street certainly would have done. So I had to try and set the um, the story in context. Uh, that's why we had the ticker tape I had with, with information on the ticker tape, which we didn't want to have a scene with, but it was a way of condensing the information without butchering Shakespeare's text, which we would have done. So it was um, it was interesting. I haven't seen the film for years. I, I, I'll... I should have looked at it, which is naughty of me, but I've been a bit, I've just literally finished my, my movie I've been doing here with Diane Keaton and Morgan Freeman. Um, we literally, I go back to London on Tuesday and, uh, we do the final DI. I check the film on Saturday and then it's all done. So, um, I should have had, I've looked at the film beforehand and been able to, though I remember it pretty well. It's, uh, it's, uh, its imagery is what stuck. I don't think we'd have got away with, we'd never got away with stuff. Oh, I remember one thing I do remember was health and safety, which to you younger men won't mean much, but health and safety didn't exist in, in either America or England as a kind of business when we made Richard. It was just coming in on Richard III. And we wanted to shoot um, at the same site where um, it was Beckton Gasworks, where um, Kubrick had shot Full Metal Jacket. An amazing abandoned gasworks, but full of toxic chemicals. 
and they wanted us to wear. So we spent several weeks. All that end scene at, at, um, at Battersea Power Station was meant to be at Get Beckton Gasworks. But um, they, at the last minute, they said we couldn't shoot there. If we did, we had to wear throwaway clothes. We had to have portable showers for everybody, the crew and all the actors. They had to wash at lunchtime. It was, they just said, basically made it impractical. But it would have been a more, in, uh, more interesting, a more plausible battle site. I think we got away with murder by using, you know, uh, people could easily have said, well, that's a ridiculous place for a battle. It doesn't work. But thank God nobody seemed to have done that. It seems to have done that. It was interesting to hear you talk earlier about how you really weren't into Shakespeare and all of that stuff. And I know to American ears, you know, Shakespeare sounds very old, arcane kind of English. It's kind of hard to understand sometimes. And I was wondering what you see today. I mean, 500 years on the value of his work and specifically Richard III. Well, I think the thing about Shakespeare, and funny enough, we're planning to do some, I have an app company now um, called Heuristic Media. And we're one of the next projects we're doing is uh, we're doing hopefully all of 37 of Shakespeare's plays. Uh, in a particularly uh, interesting and unusual way, I hope, uh, as a as a learning device. So I I, uh, I think every generation will produce its its Shakespeare plays. And the man, you know, the man just was he was a genius. His 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 use of language never seems to it's 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 understanding it. That's that's the tricky part. And I think sadly in on in stage that's what the apps are about there, helping people to understand the plays without patronising them. But I, I have a feeling an awful lot of people go to see Shakespeare plays and don't really know what's going on. But there's a terrible, you know, people don't like to say, I didn't understand that because they feel foolish and they, they might, you know, their friends might think that they should know. So no one actually admits that they don't know. I think Shakespeare will always be with us, hopefully. Um, I, you know, sure, all the, the Russian the Russian and the Japanese in different languages. Yeah, I think that the, the Russian version of whichever one in Macbeth is, I think, and there's been several of them, but that's the most, perhaps the most famous, I think. I, I don't know whether I, well, I'd say not the same. It's the language that I think is remarkable, and the stories are great. And they're perennials. They're, you know, they're, 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 they're great stories. Uh, so I would love to do, and I'd, I wanted to do Richard, um, The Merchant, in fact, with Ian and I are still talking about it now, The Merchant of Venice set in a flooded New York in, you know, 100 years from now when the waters have risen and New York is, you know, 30 feet and the Empire State's building is, you know, is everything's underwater and people are moving around in boats. So I was going to set it in the future in, in a flooded Manhattan. And that sounds awesome. Be good, but I don't know if we'll get the money to do it. It's a big project. But, of course, you know, when we did Richard III, we used – we used early CGI. I remember watching them because, you know, we used um, St. Pancras Station as the palace and a friend of mine, John Bunker, and, uh, who teaches um, CAD at the Royal College of Art, did. We had no money for that. We sort of did a lot of those shots for me. <clears throat> but the, the, the CAD in those days was really crude and very, you know, expensive and hard to do and took days to render. But... Um, no, you can do, you know, you can do stuff today. Obviously, it was nothing you can't do. Look at, look at, look at um, Gravity. I mean, although I didn't think I was an enormous fan of it as a movie, technically it was a tour de force. Yeah, some of the um, the special effects, just the way they stitch some of that together, absolutely seamless these days, which yeah, is remember. remarkable. Yeah, yeah, really good. You know, the last time we talked, you said that some of the materials for Richard III aren't really in that great a shape, and so that restoration might be a little bit difficult. Can you uh, kind of tell me again why that is? The restoration of what bits? Uh, of Richard III, because um, I know it's out on DVD in a couple countries. Oh, it's, it's, it's a disaster. It's, it's, you can't even buy it as a DVD in the U.K., 
Uh, in fact, we, the producers and I are trying to see if we can, because we never got paid back. We never got any money. We've never earned a penny, any of us, from the movie. And so technically, <clears throat> the company who owned it, it's, it's been sold, I think, four or five times. And each company's gone bankrupt and, you know, it's been bought up. So we're not sure if we don't actually have the rights to put it out as a DVD. And we may just do that. But, I mean, I remember when we talked about The Haunting of Julia, the, the, the soundtrack of The Haunting of Julia is gone. It doesn't exist anymore. They have the negative at Pinewood, uh, at um, the old rank place, but they've lost the soundtrack. So that film's, you know, gone, basically. You think maybe we can get Cure Delay and, and Mia and everybody back to yeah, re-record? <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun. But that's definitely not the case with Richard III. The materials are still in good shape. and I think so. I don't actually know. I, I mean, one hopes, but it, it's, uh, it is frightening what happens when companies get sold and they don't want to pay for the, you know, the library charges. And uh, I, I'm, I will check when I get home and see what happens to it. But um, I think there are reasonable, the reasonable DVD copies. The American one is still available. But um, you can't buy it um, in the UK and a, a few other places. It gets shown. I, I mean, it, it, it probably earns me 20 or 30 pounds a year in, in residuals. Not a big earner. But um, it was uh, the thing I think is saddest that, that McKellen didn't get an Oscar nomination for his performance because we got two Oscar nominations, um, one for costume and one for design, I think. But Ian didn't get one. And really, that was uh, I think that was um, uh, scandalous because I think his performance was not was something that should have been, he should have won, let alone be nominated. But of course, we, and sadly, MGM had two films that year, and one of them was the one that won, which was Leaving Las Vegas. And I guess they knew that when it came to, even though the Californian um, uh, film fraternity were very, very kind and generous to Richard III, probably more successful in California and Italy were the two countries that really um, fell for it. Well, fell for it maybe not be the right way to put it. Um, but... Uh, I think it's a, it's a shame that they, they put all their energy into promoting uh, leaving Las Vegas, which, of course, won. So maybe they were right in business terms. I saw it when I was 16 in the theater, wow. and um, I, that was my introduction to Ian McKellen. So when I have friends who are like, oh, Gandalf, I'm like, no, go back and watch Richard III. <laughs> well, look at the – have you ever seen him uh, – what's it um, – do you ever see a film he did called Apt Pupil? Yes. Oh, yeah. Wonderful performance. I mean, one of the great films that never did any business died a death, but I think it's one of his best performances ever. Before you got into film, you were a sculptor, and I wanted to ask, how do you think that informs your work as a filmmaker, if at all? Not at all, I don't think. I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I, it informs me as a person because I still love making things and, and designing stuff and, and taking things apart and putting it back together. Uh, process, maybe. I mean, I love the process of making movies, but that's not really about sculpture, I don't think. I approach film really. I never, I'm not a film buff. I don't really know much about films. I don't, I go to movies. I don't, I have no very bad film history. I'm never, I don't think I'm, I'm influenced by people. I guess I must be, I mean, I, Hitchcock certainly, you know, though I think some of his films were truly, his scripts were dreadful. And they don't work as movies, but God, the imagery, I mean, of course, Psycho does, but films like North by Northwest, I mean, actually, you know, and, and um, what's the one, um, Psycho does work, of course, but some, many of them, um, I feel are um, Vertigo, for example, I think is not a great script. So I guess they influenced me, uh, he influenced me rather, um, and Virginia Woolf is still my favourite. Perfor- I like performance, really. It's it's um, Directing actors is still the, the magic. When it works and you've got an actor who... It's just a joy to see them come alive in front of you. And, and I 
directing people like um, Maggie Smith and, and uh, Albert Finney and in Gathering Storm, and I, I just enjoy. So, uh, but I love. I always get involved in the set decorate the set work, and designing is to me part of it. So I'm quite hands on with that. But I don't think I'm. Uh, I'm certainly not a. Uh, an expert in film history. Um, I just kind of get on with it. I don't know how I do it really. It's, it's not that hard really. People over, you know, anyone can direct. That's the thing. And that's, I'm not being falsely modest. If you have good people around you, you don't have to know how to do it. You have to be able to communicate. So you can get a playwright or someone who's, who's a great communicator who knows how to, t- who can handle people. 70% of my work is man management. 30% at the most is the creative side. I, you can't get through films, not today anyway. You know, with four weeks, the film I've just done, I shot in 28 days and it, it doesn't look like it because um, we we have to be skillful at, at moving fast, but it's about to get through a film that quickly. I I shot this every every shot in the movie before I, I ever shoot a foot of film or digital these days. I don't storyboard. I just write. I sit in my room in my in my desk and I imagine what I would how I would tell the story. And I think, well, I think I'll start with a high shot looking down at the bed there, the two of them, and then then I'll cut to a close up of his foot because she's scratching his foot because he's got an itch so that would be a good thing so i just do that and i write it out and when i talk to the actors i tell them ideas and they say all right and they're not really very interested truthfully till you get on the set and a lot of it sticks not everything but probably 80 percent of what i write in in advance i end up using so um it's processed really it's not it's not rocket science once life itself is wrapped up um i read that you're working on a film called blindness has that been greenlit no blind we've been it shouldn't be there i must get it taken off um no i was working on it three years two or three years ago i, oh. I don't, don't think it'll ever happen no i'm uh, i'm trying i've written a film called salvage set in in india which i'm just i'd love to do but finding it hard to it's only got one european actor who's got to be in his 60s it's about a retired sea captain who's taking a ship to be um to be just you know they they, they take them there to be wrecked in these breaking yards it's about an old sea captain who's taking his, his cruise liner to for its last voyage and he stays on to watch it being cut up and gets involved with people there but it's um it's because there's only one star you know and it probably is going to cost 10 mil to make it even in india uh eight to ten mil i, I don't know We're, i'm trying but we've been on it for about two years but i'm technically retired i'm not actually meant to be making films anymore but um if anyone if anyone wants me to and the subject's good enough i'll probably scratch them come out of uh get the uh the, the finder out of retirement and have another go if they'll let me <laughs> well hey richard thank you so much for talking to us tonight this has been great yeah it's a pleasure glory hallelujah just pulled a parson Hey, Paul, get ready to call. Just like Humpty Dumpty, I'm going to fall. And I'm sitting on top. Thanks to Richard Lancrane for coming on the show. He was over on our Haunting of Julia episode. You can find out more about his work on our website at projection-booth.com. So while I was uh, looking at this film, I tried to look at a few other Richard III films, including the famous Laurence Olivier uh adaptation of it 
yeah, I didn't necessarily make it all the way through this. I think it was just a little too Shakespeare-y for me, though I did really enjoy seeing a young John Gilgood. I had never seen a young John Gilgood before, so this was kind of a an interesting thing for me. I thought he came out of the womb at about age 80. He always seemed to be uh, <laughs> you know, about the same age as he was in uh, Caligula. I really had only known him from Arthur when I was growing up, so whenever I would see him in other things, it's like, oh, it's that dude from Arthur. Yeah, he looks old rather early in his life. He's only in his 40s, and he starts to look ancient. But he's, I think he's in one of the early Hitchcock films. Is it Secret Agent? Or oh, yeah. Might be one of the early Hitchcock films. And he's, you know, he's very young, you know. He's stage matinee idol kind of guy, too, in like the 1930s, you know, when he does his Hamlet, you know, for the first time. So, um, uh, but then he ages very quickly and then seems to play all these old, older-looking parts as he goes on. Um, but, uh, the Olivier film is, uh, it, it's, it's, it's like, it's Olivier Shakespeare and, um, it's closer to the stage tradition than I think modern audiences now want a film of Shakespeare to be. Um, but for its time, it's, it's really groundbreaking and how well it's done. And I just, they just digitally restored that. And I just saw it at the theater and I, I always liked this film and I, I saw it in the movie theater and, you know, 30 millimeter and I was blown away. I mean, it was like, I, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I felt like this is the greatest Shakespeare movie I've ever seen as, you know, as the film's closing. It was that arresting, that overwhelming and uh, uh, so well performed and just uh, everything in it just completely knocked me out getting to see, you know, getting to see it in 30 millimeter. So um, that's still one of my favorites. It's always and cool this, when you get a chance to see something on the big screen. It is. I mean, it's really odd, too. Olivier's Richard III actually was shown on television, believe it or not, before it was in the theaters in America. Um, part of his financing deal involved NBC. And um, for the release in America, they showed it on TV. I think it was on a Sunday night in like a three-hour block. Um, uh, they showed the film, and then it was released in the theaters like the following week. Uh, and there was some debate at the time, and there's still some debate now, as whether or not that actually hurt box office for it, especially because at the time, everybody's watching on these little black-and-white TVs, and that film doesn't really work that well on a little black-and-white TV. You know, people get to see great performances, and especially at the time, these great Shakespearean performances. But uh, I'm, I'm surprised how um, that uh, Olivier was even okay with that, to film this gorgeous Technicolor 30-millimeter film and say, yeah, sure, put it on your little American TVs. I was laughing because Ralph Richardson and John Gilgood are in this, and just two weeks ago we were talking to Dave Thomas about them showing up up on SCTV and just how difficult they were to work with and how uh, not into the idea of comedy they were. So it was, uh, I was laughing about seeing both of them in this one. And I was also pretty impressed with uh, the makeup effects on Sir Lawrence Olivier. I don't remember him having that huge honker of a nose. So I was very uh, impressed to see that. Yeah, well, it looked really good on him. I mean, as far as like, I didn't, it didn't look like a fake nose. It looked very natural to him. And it's the iconic performance of Richard now. I mean, you know, people, people would do Richard III imitations or lines. And all. Peter Sellers did a famous one where he did a, uh, a, um, a Beatles song. Um, I forget which Beatles song he did, but he did it in that Richard III outfit and in that voice. It has been 
A hot day's night. And I have been working like a dog. It's been a hot day's night. I should be sleeping like a log. But when I get home to you, I find the things that you do will make me feel all right. You know I work all day to get you money to buy you things. And it's worth it just to hear you say, you'll give me everything. That's why I love to come home. Because when I get you alone, you know I feel okay. And that has become the the Richard the Third for people ever since that film. And when actors, especially you know, shortly after that film, when they had to perform Richard the Third, you had to really go, you had to really work hard to go against that performance because it was it was uh, um, so defining for that character. Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by this son of York. And all the clouds that lowered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean, buried. Now are our brows bound with victorious wreaths, our bruised arms hung up for monuments, our stern alarms changed to merry meetings, our dreadful marches to delightful measures. Grim-visaged war has smoothed his wrinkled front. And now, instead of mounting barbed steeds to fright the souls of fearful adversaries, he capers nimbly in a lady's chamber to the lascivious pleasing of a lute. You think that that's part of the reason why no one else has really tried to do it? Because as Mike was saying in, in near the top, that there really is only sort of two films, the Olivier film and then the McKellen film, which we're talking about this week. And there's, you know, it doesn't seem like everybody's rushing the gates to uh, try and do Richard III, except for the documentary, I guess you can call it a documentary, of Al Pacino and his buddies looking for Richard. Yeah, maybe it's... I, I think actors want to do it. People like to do Shakespeare want to do it. Um, but I guess, yeah, for film, you know, the more I think about it, the more I think of it, talking about it, the history aspect and that kind of thing, I guess that's scary for, you know, uh, people making American films or, 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 or big feature films is that it, it is a film kind of grounded in, in, in a medieval historical moment. And to take that on, you have to either kind of completely redo it and do an alternate history kind of thing, which, which Long Crane and, and McKellen did, or you've got to you've got to kind of invest it with the right medieval setting. And, and it seems like the audience seems to, if you don't do it right, the audience will be confused because they don't know the medieval history behind it. And this is where I don't understand. This is where, where, where I'm a bad judge of this because I know, you know the history behind the War of the Roses fairly well. So, I mean, when I watch it, I know, and, and I know what's being exaggerated and what's actually not historically true and that kind of stuff, but I know the history and maybe for the just the you know the regular moviegoer going in, you've got to be so strong in establishing who's the king, who's not the king, who's in power, what do all these you know titles mean for these people? Um, we know what the relationships are and how they relate politically. Things you don't have to do if you're you know doing a gangster film where somebody's trying to be the Godfather and killing off his competition. You know people understand that uh, that storyline right away. But with this, it seems a little 
harder to get into, um, and maybe that's why people are scared of it. But when this film came, when, when Long Crane's film came, another reason I think people haven't done it a lot is because after Olivier's film is because it seems like there's a lot of Shakespeare films that come out now, and it seems to everybody that, oh, yeah, Shakespeare movies come out all the time, and that was not always the case. There was this big Shakespeare renaissance of films that Branagh really kicks off as Henry V in 89, and I was just looking up to see how many films, and within those, within the decades since Branagh's Henry V, you had Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, you had Zeffirelli's Hamlet with Mel Gibson, Prospero's books, uh, another two Branagh films, Much Do About Nothing, and his uh, Hamlet, The Othello with Lawrence Fishburne and Branagh, Twelfth Night, great production of Twelfth Night, that Baz Luhrmann, Romeo and Juliet with DiCaprio, Titus, then you have films like My Own Private Idaho, which is a Shakespeare film, you know, kind of updated. And you have a great gangster film, not a great gangster film, a good gangster film called Men of Respect, which is the Macbeth story with John Tortoro set in a gangster world, modern-day gangster world. I mean, just those films right there. Hollywood, after Branagh's Henry V, people started making Shakespeare films. Before that, they're very few and far between. You know, when Olivier's, Olivier's Richard III did not make him a lot of money. Um, uh, and he made uh, only one more Shakespeare film after that, his Othello, um, which, which I find to be almost unwatchable, his performance in that. Uh, it's like watching, you know, it's, it's like watching a guy in blackface, you know, portray this, you know, lusty black man, the whole film. And it's just, it cringe, I cringe every time I see him do it. Um, but Shakespeare films were, have never, have never been good box office. Um, uh, the prestige films that, 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 that studios used to like to either make or, or get attached to. And now it seems like this Shakespeare comes out, you know, this, it seems like there's almost a Shakespeare or a movie or two every year. Um, and that's only a recent development. So maybe we will see more, you know, maybe we will see another Richard III film or two um, in the mix sometime in the next decade or so. The conversation that we had on Titus with Julie Taymor, she said it is very hard to get the financing to do these things. So, um, she said that people are not running towards her with fistful of cash in order to make these things. Yeah, Branagh only had an early run with it. It was Henry V and then Much Ado, and they both did very well. But they're doing very well on kind of, you know, for uh, that kind of film. You know, they're not blockbusters. Um, and, then it's, and then he's able to do with Hamlet, which, is only an, which only becomes an art house film. You know, it's four hours long, uncut. And then after that, after that, uh, Branagh really has a hard time getting the funding. He does Love's Labor's Lost. With, which is an interesting setting, again, like this kind of 1930 setting he does for it. Uh, and then he's forced to go to uh, TV. Uh, his uh, his last one was As You Like It, and it was made for HBO. Um, he can't get the financing to do, you know, a big-budget Shakespeare film, you know, feature film anymore. But he did do uh, Thor, which I heard was yeah. in the first folio uh, that Shakespeare <laughs> ever put together. So, you know, he was doing a historical piece on the God of Thunder, of course, a little Norse mythology for all you kids. You can actually see the, the Shakespearean touches in that, and in, in, the, in the kind of the way he has this kind of Asgard world, and Anthony Hopkins, and the way they're all delivering their lines is a kind of almost pseudo Shakespearean, you know, part of that film. Well, definitely, yeah. Loki as the the villainous brother who, again, likes to just do villainy for the sake of it, and feels that he's been slighted by not being his father's son and by Thor being the favorite son. So, yeah, it's very he, – he definitely treats it very Shakespearean. And then having Anthony Hopkins as Odin, I think, really kind of helps out as well. 
Yeah, I'd love to see Tom Hiddleston doing Richard the Third. Boy, he'd be he'd be oh. unbelievably good. So yeah, you know he's been doing stuff on British TV, Shakespeare stuff. He did a new Henry Five with him, and then Henry Four plays with him as Prince Hal, and then Henry Five, and I think he just did a Hamill on stage, but I don't, I don't think they're going to film it. Um, but the next big Shakespeare movie coming out, or the one the next Shakespeare movie coming out that I'm excited about is the Macbeth coming out soon with Michael Fassbender as Macbeth. And um, and it's a medieval setting, and and they're and they're going for you know a kind of uh, historically you know kind of uh, accurate set, medieval setting for Shakespeare's you know Macbeth, which which looks really yeah I at least want to say it. Well, the other one that I also mentioned talking about uh, Richard the Third on film is Looking for Richard, which I believe was ninety six. Was it ninety six or ninety seven? It was ninety six. And for those who haven't seen it, I saw this in the theater as well. Al Pacino and friends, including people such as Kevin Klein and Alec Baldwin and Kevin Spacey, before he got the Shakespeare bug and started doing all that stuff with the Royal uh, Vic over. I think that was the theater over in the in the UK. Um, decided to get together and stage, I guess in parts, not a complete version of Richard III, but sort of film sections of it. And the other half of the film that's kind of weaved through is a discussion about Shakespeare, about the process of being an actor and doing Shakespeare, and sort of why Richard and why this play is so interesting to Pacino. Who's going to say action around here? I don't want to. Action. Now is the winter of our discontent. Now is the winter of our discontent. Is the winter of our discontent. discontent. And for my name of George begins with G. It follows in his thought that I am he. His first name is really George. Whose first name? Clarence's. Fox Searchlight Pictures presents... Shakespeare, what do you know about Shakespeare? They're not going to get Richard III. I can't even get Richard III. my lord, They're doing this kind of Shakespearean acting. We're getting $40 a day and all the donuts we can eat on this podcast. Just tuned right out. We just kind of made out in the back row. Al Pacino's Looking for Richard. Cheated a feature by dissembling nature. Deformed, deformed, deformed. Set before my time. Yeah, I saw that in the theater when it came out, and um, I plead uh, youthful ignorance. When it came out, I, I, I'm pretty sure I loved it, and now I find it almost unwatchable. Um, now I find it to be so pretentious. These, uh, it's not just Pacino, it's the other actors, too. Because some of them are great actors, and actually some of them have done some great Shakespeare work. But the way they came off, come off in this film, and I think it's mainly due to Pacino, is that, you know, oh, we've really, we've, we, we so love Shakespeare, but we're, we're trying to be so real about it. And it just sounds so pretentious to me is the best word I could think of saying. And I, and I, and I, I, I don't like Pacino doing Shakespeare anyway. Um, uh, his, his Merchant of Venice was a few years ago. I didn't like that at all. Um, I didn't like his performance at, at all in that. Um, and he's threatened to do more. Was he Shylock? Yes. And he's threatened to do more Shakespeare. Um, and uh, I'm actually not a fan of his, and I, and I find his looking for Richard to be, yeah, I just, it's him telling the world that he is a really important actor. He's not just, you know, you know, saying hello to, you know, to my little friend kind of guy, and, and I, I don't like it. So. I, I saw it in the theater, and like you, I think I liked it 
pretty well because, as I said, it was during that whole raft of Shakespeare films that came out. So it kind of fit in there, but it was sort of this alternate take. And I enjoyed it. But when I went to watch it on Netflix recently, it is all right. It's watchable. Uh, I think more than anything, who's more interesting in this is not Pacino, but sort of the side people and maybe yeah. not even the actors. Like there's this one scene with a guy and I can't tell if he's a homeless guy or whatever. And he's on the street and they're interviewing him and he's just like, we need to talk like that. We need to talk like that because when you talk like that, that has power and that has passion. That language has passion. That has power. That means something. It's like today we don't we don't talk like that and then people kill each other and all this. And he's like given this philosophical reasoning on why everyone's so violent because they're not uh, – there's no passion in their language anymore, which which I thought was an interesting little you know piece of street philosophy. I, and there's kind of a philosophy behind that looking for Richard too that's like – it's like, look, Shakespeare isn't hard. It's just kind of easy if you if you just kind of accept it. And and it's not. It's sorry, people. It's four hundred year old verse. It's not. It's not accessible to modern Americans. I completely understand that it's not accessible. You kind of have to, you know, you have to prepare yourself a little bit to to enjoy it, to to, or to get something out of it. Um, um, and the only the only thing that makes Shakespeare really work on film is. If the actors and the director, you know, really, but but even the, but, but if the actors really know how to do it well, and if they can do those lines well, and if they're good enough actors, you don't. Even, it doesn't even sound like it's you know 400 year old verse. But it takes a high level of performance, I think, to make that come true. And um, and I think Pacino's Richard. I think Pacino thinks that he can just deliver Richard the Third's lines. And just in his own voice, and and however um, you know he wants to do it, and it's still and it still works, and it sounds terrible. I can't understand what the hell you're talking about. Now is the winter of our discontent, made <laughs> glorious summer by this son of York. Robin Williams used to do an imitation of uh, Pacino doing his Richard the Third, and it was funny, and it was, <laughs> and it was completely accurate. It was it was just mumbled like Robin Williams, you know, and it was completely accurate too. Uh, you ever picture different people playing Hamlet? Say to be or not to be, like Stallone. Oh, Stallone. Mel Gibson be. just did Hamlet. Pretty good, I hear. Uh, it was wonderful, it? I hear. It's yeah. like great to hear, right? But I mean, Stallone, I couldn't Stallone, see. you can feel like hey. to be or what, you know. <laughs> Schwarzenegger walks into the room. I'm back. Watch out, Denmark. <laughs> Come here, I love you. Big kiss for you. Sorry, you're dead. <laughs> Look over here. I'm going to do another speech, but first, I'm going to tear through a wall and flex my nipples. <laughs> Don't be afraid of me. Don't be afraid. I'll be back. I'll be back. Yeah. Nicholson, you could think of him. Yeah, he could do great. He'd be a great Hamlet, just like neither a borrower nor a lender be, <laughs> and the t-shirts keep for thine self. <laughs> These are obscure references, but we must. We throw him in just to keep yeah, the audience. Shakespeare said, "Was it not him that said, kill all the lawyers first? But of course, there were no agents then. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? Ten percent. My my lord must give up that check for not feeling this." Carpe per diem sees the check, and yet Neil Bush still works. <laughs> and when Pacino first did that on stage, he got hammered hard. And one of the things people hammered about was that people couldn't understand what the hell you were saying. Yeah, it's just the words. Who cares? <laughs> There's only two syllables in this whole wide world worth hearing. Hoo-ah.
I'm glad to hear that you called looking for Richard pretentious because that's really the word that was kind of going through my mind when I was trying to watch it for the first time the other night. And just, I, I was laughing at it quite a bit because there's one part where it's like Pacino and another actor and they're in this room and they're talking and going back and forth and they keep talking about Alec Baldwin. And then they cut to this shot of Alec Baldwin, who's done up all in this like character costume and everything. And I'm just like, whoa, hey, where where did Alec Baldwin come from? And then they cut <laughs> back to them, and they're still talking. Then they talk about Alec Baldwin again. Same exact shot they show of him. I'm like, what, 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 what's going on? Why is Alec Baldwin just like showing up in this costume? And then later on, they show the scene where he's dressed in that costume. I'm like, why did you guys feel that it was necessary to show Alec Baldwin every time you said his name? It was just this bizarro. It was like, what? You know, it's like if you, you happen to mention, you know, George Washington and all of a sudden you show a picture of a dollar bill. It's like, wait, hey, what? What's going Yeah, it was just bizarre. I didn't make it to the infamous Winona Ryder part. I couldn't even stomach what I saw. So I, I didn't get to see her wonderful turn as Lady Anne, though I've, I've heard about it several times. Uh, over the years about just how terrible she was in this movie. I doubt so, her voice could do it at all. I don't remember it. So that means it gets uh, three thumbs up, a total recommendation from the whole panel this <laughs> week. Uh, go out, uh, drop whatever you're doing, and watch Looking for Richard. Well, my big fear, though, is that because I'm pretty sure I liked it, was I a pretentious ass when I – oh, man, that's what, I, that's what worries me that I was that pretentious ass, too. So. Well, I was no, only 18. Not, yeah, I was older, and you know, now I'm not, of course, that at all. <laughs> I was only 18, so that's my excuse. So I got nothing. All right. Well, right. Um, well, you should be happy then that Pacino didn't get cast in the other film that would have been <laughs> Shakespeare. And if you went and you listened to the Titus episode, Julie Taymor said that originally it was going to be Al Pacino right. as yeah. Titus. So yeah, dodged a bullet. Yeah, that would have sucked. I'm certain it would have sucked. Pacino couldn't do that wrong. Not any day of the week. <laughs> oh, I'm crazy. I'm crazy. Oh, I'm not crazy. I'm crazy. <laughs> Colonel Colonel Frank Slade from uh, Scent of a Woman, yes, has... Uh, hoo-ah. 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 Your kids are in the pie! <laughs> you want to see your sons? You're eating your sons! Oh... <laughs> uh. uh. It's, oh, that's so just too much fun. Okay, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. There was once in Venice a Moor, Othello, who for his merits in the affairs of war was held in great esteem. It happened that he fell in love with a young and noble lady called Desdemona, who, drawn by his virtue, became equally enamored of him. I'll poison his delight. Oh, beware, my lord of jealousy. Look to your wife. Is there unconscious thing? Let there be women to abuse their husbands at such gross kind. Wouldst thou do such a deed for all the world? Why, would not you? No, by this heavenly light. I might do it as well as the dark. A sweet woman. Her chopper into messes. Call me. Is it safe? Is he not light of brain? He is that he is.
Stella. Hi, Desdemona. Will you come to bed, my lord? That's right. We will be back with more from the Bard as we talk about Orson Welles' Othello next week as Shakespeare September winds up. Before we go, we want to thank Dr. Phil Stone and director Richard Loncrane for joining us. You can find out more about their work and Richard III over at our website, projection-booth.com. I also want to thank our special guest co-host Ed Pettit for showing up on our show again. So, you know, we've been talking a lot about Shakespeare, but uh, what up with you, sir? Um, some Shakespeare stuff. Uh, actually, uh, I'm giving a Shakespeare talk at the Free Library of Philadelphia in October. Um, they have this fabulous Shakespeare collection, and they did they did a lot of stuff um, earlier this year with um, uh, the uh, the Shakespeare's 450th birthday, and uh, I'm going to give a talk there just on Shakespeare and reading Shakespeare uh, in October. And I am actually I, I want to say this too. Um, I, I'm a, I'm the president of the Oak Lane Shakespeare Club, which is a club formed in 1908 originally. I wasn't the president then, although sometimes I think I'm that old. Um, And what we do is we get together twice a month, about eight months a year, and we read a Shakespeare play out loud. Uh, we're actually reading Richard III uh, tomorrow night, which is which is very you know serendipitous that that actually is happening, you know, after doing this podcast. But um, and what it is is that's all we do. We just read the play out loud. We read half one night and then half a couple weeks, the second half a couple weeks later. And I encourage people to read Shakespeare out loud all the time. It is. A, a way of reading the plays that becomes automatically more understandable. That's, that's a terrible phrase, but you, you really do understand what's going on more when you read it out loud. Even if the verse is difficult, and sometimes it is, um, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's words written to be spoken aloud to begin with. And um, reading a play out loud is a really fun thing to do, especially if you can get other people and sit in a room and do it with you. You don't have to act it out. You just read it out loud, and it really comes off the page, and, and it's an exciting thing to do. And uh, I would encourage anybody to read Shakespeare out loud and, and most probably find a friend to read Shakespeare out loud with you. Well, thanks again, Ed, for coming on the show. And sadly, this ends our time with you for Shakespeare September. But of course, we'll put some links up there and let folks know about uh, your Shakespeare Club and your presentations that are coming up for those who are interested in the Philadelphia area and of course this week's film over at projection-booth.com and hey while you're there go over to the iTunes page where you'll find the projection booth of course and leave us a review and some stars or maybe a horse a horse my podcast for a horse
consequences of the evil that lurks within. Smiling faces, smiling faces sometimes, they don't tell the truth. Smiling faces, smiling faces tell lies, and I got proof. Of the world. 